right, hello everybody. Welcome back to Way of the Truth Warrior. My name is David Whitehead, and as always, I'm very happy and excited to be here with you today. And it is Monday, January the 9th, 2023. That's the date. It's 2023, and so much has already happened. It's already only the 9th of January, and there is all kinds of stuff, all kinds of information that is breaking. Uh, I'm not going to do a news show with you today. We're going to cover chapter nine of cult of the medics, which I hope you got to check out. You can go watch it at cult of the medics.com right now for free. Um, I got so many notes and things to go with you today, but I'll do some more of the news, probably more on my telegram channel. If you go and follow me t.me forward slash DW truth warrior, you can get all the updates of the stuff that I've been looking at. I've been so incredibly busy doing deep research, slideshow preparation, going on other shows, planning on uh, shows and presentations on so many different uh, subjects. It's just been incredible. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. Although I'm happy I did get a bit of a reprieve during the holidays, had some time off and got to recharge. And now I'm just getting back into the swing of things. So you can uh, stay tuned for a lot more content coming on this channel. Um, also on Earth Chronicles, which I do Wednesdays with my good friend, Josh Reed. You can get that on Badlands Media. Uh, Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. And Badlands Media, congrats to them. They are hitting the top three, top four. They're always in like three, four, or five slot on Rumble of, of the most viewed channels. So they're just killing it over there. So go check it out. And Earth Chronicles once a week on Wednesdays. we got some fun stuff coming up. Uh, but today, we are diving into Chapter 9, The Invisible College. What's up with that? I also have a few things to read off to you. I got some feedback on this chapter, pro and con. So we're going to go through a little bit of that. But I hope you all are cozy and doing well and staying focused and are still in the fight to preserve freedom, truth, justice, and humanity at this point. And that's what this whole exploration is with this documentary series that I've been working on for quite some time is to try to get to the bottom of the medical system pharmaceutical industry, the pandemic, all the things that are going on. Is it all coincidence? Is it all um, just random things happening? Or are there some connective tissues? And do some of those connective tissues actually even go back into the ancient past? You can't really understand where you are unless you understand where you've come from. And uh, so that's what the series is about, is it's a deep investigation into that. And chapter nine, chapter nine, I mean, it was the hardest to create for so many different reasons, um, but it was also, I think, turned out to be one of the best. And I want to go through some of the things that I couldn't even get into in the chapter that I wanted to. That's what these shows are about. It's almost better certain information is covered in a podcast style or presentation style versus just documentary. Um, so think of chapter nine as the introduction to just the themes and the things that I'm going to mention to you today. And I hope you're going to take some notes because that's what the show is. It's research notes. So take some notes, follow up on it. And as I always say, you have to do your own research. We all have to do our own research. We're being bombarded right now with information on all sides, whether you're in the mainstream world or you're in the alternative world, we are being bombarded with conflicting theories and ideas and uh, personalities and whistleblowers and news media headlines and all this stuff is just hitting you 24 seven. 
And as you're researching it, I'm just recommending to preserve your sanity, make sure that you're taking care of yourself in the process. Don't run out of, don't run out of breath, you know, before the fight's over. Uh, make sure you're healthy, make sure your mind is healthy, make sure you're taking care of yourself on all levels so that you can be equipped to actually survive this process of trying to go down these rabbit holes and find out what's going on and analyze information. And it's not just all about the technical information. I think that this process of looking outside of yourself and looking at the world and the situation we're in is ultimately a way that you can learn more about you. And if otherwise, if it wasn't relevant to you in some way, it just could just be chalked up to a, a boring history lesson or whatever, or maybe pretty interesting depending, but, um, no matter how you look at it, just make sure, take care of your mind and, uh, try not to invest too much or get too, uh, too attached to everything you're reading and hearing and seeing. It's important to stay objective, keep collecting information. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what this series is for me. And this show and all the work I do is I'm just collecting information. I'm observing it. I'm documenting what I get and what I can and what I can, what one person can possibly look at and digest and, and get into. And it's an evolving process. It's the process that actually should be the scientific method, right? The real scientific method about having an evolving hypothesis based on data and information and, and facts and evidence. That's key. Um, so let's not get fixed on one way of looking at things. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to pull up a few different angles on a few points that I've brought up and, uh, you know, you fill in the gaps. But the reason I'm kind of opening up with this is because, uh, I have this interesting phenomena that happens and no matter what you do publicly, anytime you do public work, you get all kinds of feedback and I actually love all of it, but you definitely got to take your share of hate mail and slings and arrows and people jumping to conclusions and calling you names. And you just got to deal with that no matter what you do. I could have done like a gardening channel and I probably would have got that. So I expect it. I'm not worried about it, but I do read some of these emails and some of them I just ignore. And some of them I go, you know what, even though it was written in a kind of a rude fashion, there are good points and I want to address them. And so that's what we're going to do. And I'm just going to give you one of many that I've gotten um, just so we can kind of open this up right out of the gate. So here it is. I'm obviously not going to name the person, but someone sent this in to me and they're saying this, I've been following and sharing you far and wide on various platforms. You just lost me quoting controlled opposition shill Malone on mass formation. Um, MF came out when the fingers started to point at mass media mission accomplished, but you're going along with this reminds me, even I can't be fooled disappointed, but I've been burnt before. We'll now do a deep dive on you. Should have done it at the beginning. Oh, Dr. Bregan has a track record of helping the powerless. Look up his testimonies on lobotomies. Malone came out of nowhere and 20 years of tests of mRNA had 100% of all the animals died and he took it. I don't buy it. Now Malone is suing Bregan for 25 million. Shame on you. Sloppy. Learn to recognize control opposition or you are one of them. All right. Well, let's just uh, let's take this here. So I've had a few emails on this and I thought I would just give you guys a dive on it. So obviously in chapter nine, in one of the opening sequences, it's actually one of my favorite sequences, um, I'm going through the statements that are made by various people. And I've got 
Klaus Schwab in there. I've got uh, Randy. Um, oh my God, my mind's going blank. My good friend Randy, Doctor Randy. He he had a nice little quote on there. Um, we had Yoel Harari, um, M- Malone, Doctor Malone, um, Archbishop Vigano. Right. It was sort of a mixed bag in that intro sequence. And if you go watch the chapter, you'll see what I mean. And before we get into each person, my thinking, whether you agree with it or not, as to how I'm making these films, is that my thinking is that it's a documentary, which means I'm documenting the time that we're in while I'm making it. So I didn't plan every episode out for years in advance. The research was done for years. But to sew it all together and make it something that will be watchable for a variety of people, where you have people that are very educated, much like people on this channel, but then you also have so many of these people that are in the normie mainstream world that are just starting to catch that there's a hint going on of something going wrong. It's just starting to twig right now with all these athletes dropping, with the media just contradicting itself every day now, with all this information that's coming out to the public that we've never seen in a public square like this before, but that was pretty much known in the circles that I ran in, the people that I learned from for many years. Uh, but anyways, you got to speak to a wide audience of people when you make a film. I mean, otherwise, if I'm just making a film that's preaching to the choir, to the people that already know what's going on and are just trying to figure out the details of things, that kind of a project can only go so far in actually doing any good, I think, you know? Um, so there is stuff in there for people who are advanced, if you will, in researching these subjects. And then there's stuff in there for all of, uh, all of our family and friends and people, the young people, people just waking up right now that need bridges of information to help them get to where we're up, where we are, where we understand so far where this is. Right. So. One of the things I liked about that Malone clip, aside from him, and I'm not here to do a podcast on either attacking or defending Robert Malone. I'm going to let you make up your own mind on him as a person and what you think about all of the stuff he's said and done and whose side he's on and whatever. That's all up to you. But to address this, I don't care if Elmo from Sesame Street said the statement that was made in that clip. I don't care if they resurrected Count Dracula and he said it. The fact that it was said documents a turning point in the mass mind, in the public mind. Because if you remember, and I did put it in that clip, I cited it as a sort of a chronology. And this is how I tried to roll this out. So it doesn't mean I'm a 100% advocate for the particular theory that Robert Malone was just reciting from what he learned from uh, Dr. Mateus Desmond who I also feature in a section there because I, so these are the sort of academic, more mainstream minds. Okay. That came from the institutions, which is why everybody thinks they're just shills working for the WEF and who knows, right? Who knows? But they pointed out some truths that we need to get into the weeds on to understand it. Right. And so Malone comes out on the Joe Rogan experience. I can't remember the exact date. I put it in the, I cited it in the actual bit. And I put it as, you know, Joe Rogan experience. This is what happened, right? That went super ultra mega viral and was the clip. It was not a clip that came from Professor Mateus Desmond, and I'm going to get to him next, okay? 
it wasn't a clip from him that went viral. It was a clip from Robert Malone because of who he is and because he went on Rogan and it just, the way he said it really, really made sense. And it, it actually, that is a brilliant statement. I, 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 I'm going to get into how it all relates to what I was trying to show in this chapter, but you got to show the chronology. So he said it, that's the clip that made this whole thing go viral. There's hashtags on Twitter. It started trending mass formation. What it did was it gave a word to people to describe what they were seeing. And this concept of mass formation psychosis in my mind needs to be separated and just looked at it isolated on its own as a term that is trying to describe why people are just blindly following what they're being told because everybody else is doing it, even though many of those people probably deep down disagreed with it or questioned it or were suspicious of it. They put that aside to jump into the mass mind. So you kind of have to learn from some of these academic guys and the way they look at it from psychology and sociology and even medical science, you just get a view of how they see it, right? On a basic level. And they're accurate in describing the phenomena. That's why I like Matthias Desmond's theory. And that's why I liked the statement from Robert Malone, right? Which just because it's an, it's just a great, it, it's just an introductory explanation to mass psychology when in crisis, right? We, we flock together. And so you're learning the dynamics of it. Okay. We're not even at the stage I wanted to take it and I want to continue to take it. We're just, how do you talk to somebody that's never heard this before? How do you put a message out there that can help people understand what they're experiencing before we even get to the deeper theories and the deeper ideas as to what caused mass formation? And was it really just that? Or was there other manipulative elements behind it or mass mind control, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to go through that. But so that's where, that's why that clip is there is it's a marker in time to document an event that happened that produced a viral hashtag that caused people all over, including in this community to start thinking about mass psychology. I'm grateful just for that. Even if there's issues with the actual theory or people have things they want to fill in, go for it. But you got to start somewhere. You got to reach people where they're at. And when pe people are so brainwashed that they have to have all their truths given to them from official institutions and people with degrees and people that are smart and know what they're talking about. And there are many that do know what they're talking about, but you have to give them experts. If I give them renegades and rogues and insiders and, and people who just wrote books and thought about it and wrote a book, even though it might be way more profound in terms of actual truth coming from that renegade, the average person won't listen just because of that. That's how deep the mass programming is. So how do you penetrate that? Do you just keep slapping them upside the head with all these renegades that no one's ever heard of and that you go to Wikipedia and in two seconds, it, it sounds like there's some kind of quack. You don't start there. You introduce them through the mainstream sources. This is why when I post on my social media, I love finding mainstream media articles that contradict themselves, that contradict the narrative that, that exact same media establishment is trying to put out. I love doing that because I don't have to go to like some conspiracy website or some rogue band censored channel 
to share, which most people won't even open just because of that, right? I'm going to go, I want to show you with your own scientific journals that you love so much, with your own media propagandists that you love so much, your mainstream media outlets are admitting certain things. They're not going all the way. It's usually out of context and then they try to explain it away, but it's there. It's an admission because they have to, they can't completely deny reality and they'll never be able to keep a mind control program going on if they tell you a 100% lie. I think this is another fallacy in our community where people think everything is a 100% lie. It wouldn't work. Your consciousness wouldn't even attach to it. It has to be majority of a truth spun and manipulated to make you draw a conclusion about that point of data. That's different. That's different than just flat out 100% lies. Another point I would say about people that I'm going to feature, and I know there's people that everybody has their opinions about that I've put in this series. Some of them you like, some of them you don't, some of them whatever. They're just people that we're watching this whole thing happen. And you're getting people from within the mainstream institutions and we're watching them wake up in real time. I actually just posted a clip, maybe I'll finish with it later, of a doctor, a YouTube doctor, uh, who, or he was a medical, he studies medical journals or something. I can't remember his exact degree, but we watched him wake up from his initial videos, early 2020 to like fully supporting WHO has all the best scientists in the world. And, uh, all these vaccines are going to be miracles from God, like the way he talked about it. And you watch him change over time till his latest video where he's basically like one of us now, like, Oh my God, there's gotta, I didn't want to go with conspiracy, but now I'm going conspiracy right? So in the beginning, he's making fun of conspiracy and saying, we're not doing that. Now at the end, he's like, hmm, conspiracy theorists were right. So we kind of have to admit that at least he's honest. But if we attack somebody like that in the middle of them actually making videos where they influence lots of people and coming out and admitting some of the things that we're trying so desperately to get people to understand, why would we go screw you? You're not even welcome in our community for coming out. We don't even want you because you're not all the way in. You're not as deep down the rabbit hole as my favorite people are. So therefore screw off. So now you got these guys that are trying to come over from the mainstream and they're just running into a very hostile and aggressive alternative research community. That's just calling them Illuminati agents the whole time and, and not listening to anything they have to say and not giving them any ground for coming out to, apologize and change their stance, you know? So there's that factor to take into all of it. And I'm just trying to give you the big, big picture of just how I'm, how I'm thinking about it. Okay. Next. So after Malone, okay. And Malone is an interesting character. He's almost like an Elon Musk kind of a character for me where you're like, yep, I know you're completely related to the cult of the medics. I know you're in with all the top groups and you've been sponsored by all these people for a long time and you're totally there. But Weird how Malone went from calling out this vaccine, which he hesitated in the beginning and then started more and more and more coming out against it to the point where now he's like, don't do it for the most part, uh, comparatively. And then for people who are saying he's a WEF shill, it's funny how he's now talking about the World Economic Forum agenda and he's talking about the Great Reset and he's talking about the UN stuff and he's talking about transhumanism and he's talking about the technology that he patented or a team patented with him that is being used by these groups to 
bring about this great reset. And this is the new way they want to bring it in medicine. And he's against that. That's the current status that I've heard him say. So I'm not saying one way or the other. Maybe he is. I, I really don't know. I'll let you, the jury's, you're the jury. You figure it out. But it's it's one of those things where you're like, okay, so he's he's a shill for them, but he's exposing them. So that could be a strategic thing, or we could just be watching him slowly move away from the foundations that he blindly trusted like every other doctor out there. Could be. I don't know. We'll let you think about it. As for lawsuits with people, I need all the, I need both sides. I need to see the actual thing. Um, I'm new to understanding who this Dr. Bregan is. And I'll bet you if he's been out there trying to warn people, God bless him. And I, I don't know the details of that. I had no knowledge of that. Um, but I also don't know how, what's going on. So at that point, I'll just, um, we're going to have to see how it rolls forward. But to me, that has no bearing on the statement because it's a documentation in time so that we can get to the next step. And the next step is Dr. Matthias Desmet, who wrote the book, Psychology of Totalitarianism. Now, Desmet based all of his theories off of Gustav Le Bon and Edward Bernays and many of these others who I've been mentioning and Michael, my, my friend Michael Tessarian and I have been mentioning on Unenslaved since 2016, okay? So I thought that was interesting. We finally had an academic come out and bring that gentleman's work forward to talk about mass formation and mass psychology and crowd consciousness and how, it, how the elites see it and then how these academics see it and then what we're seeing right now. So that's valuable because now that was the next marker in time where after that, people were going, well, where did this idea that Malone was talking about on Rogan come from? Because it didn't come from Malone. He was just reading what Desmond brought up. And then you go, okay, now Desmond is getting more attention. His book is selling. It's great, right? Now, Desmond doesn't like to go down the conspiracy path, but he does do a good job of giving you the diagnosis of mass mind control. And so even though you might not call it that, he's giving you the blueprint of it from an academic perspective. Okay, so it's important. It's important but they're still lacking because they're missing the conspiracy. Okay. The real one, the real planned element of some of this. And that's where I disagree with them. So I think what I'm trying to say is when you do really good research, you have to have the ability to have a sort of nuanced position on some of these things. And you also have to read all of the information, whether it's coming from the black lodge themselves uh, meaning the dark, you know, occult people on the top level, food chain, Club of Rome. You got to read all that stuff, what it says on the World Economic Forum website, what these doctors are saying, all that. You got to get the mid-range people who are just pulling away from that and starting to actually side with many of our arguments. And then you got to go right to the end where you get to the real top of the shelf, uh, where it's the people that have been blowing the whistle on just how deep this cult of the medics rabbit hole goes. Okay. So I'm just saying there's stages. And when you do a film, my thinking of it is, is you don't go extreme level the whole way through. We could totally do films like that. And I might in the future, just like who cares about the normies? <laughs> Let's just talk to our people. But I'm also trying to bridge gaps and build bridges and bring people together because just at least on the points that we need to, because the enemy is unified. They're organized planned, financed up the wazoo. They've got all the levers and controls and we're all just running through this on a nanosecond basis and jump into conclusions and making theories. And that's normal. It's to be expected, but sometimes we got to zoom out and go, 
there's this goal I want to get to, which is to introduce people to this big um, point of data that is going to help them understand what's going on. But they're not ready for that. It's like when I teach martial arts, I know I've, got, I've been teaching martial arts long enough that I've got the big zoomed out picture of it. But the person walking in my gym, never done it before in their lives, out of shape, you know, is still eating McDonald's three times a day. I can't go to that high level with them right away. You got to start with the beginning steps. Okay, let's talk about nutrition. Let's talk about sleep. Let's talk about eliminating certain things from the diet, especially if you're going to be training, you know. Let's talk about basics. Let's get you in. Let's do, you know, like there's a process to help bring someone along. So that's to me what a film does is it offers something for everybody. And that's where we were going. But then I was also trying to establish um, the real history of where this idea of mass consciousness analyzation came from, which was actually where I, why. So I put Desmond. So Malone started it. Then it was Desmond. Then it was Michael Tessarian from an interview that I did with him in June of 2020. And yes, it was one of the interviews that was censored. I only had video clips of it. Uh, the rest of that interview, I believe, is still on my iTunes and my pod being in an audio format. And I just got to go dig up the link and I'll post it and let you guys know where to find the whole interview. But it was where Michael was getting into all the things in 2020. So before Malone came out, before Desmond came out, we were on Unslaved, breaking this down. And I've got to say there's probably over 30 episodes of Unslaved. Uh, to talk about mass consciousness, the, the control of mass consciousness and how it happens, group think, all that stuff. And so he was talking about it as a contagion, hysterical contagion is what he called it, mass hysteria. And on Unslaved, we're unique in this whole conspiracy alternative research field because we actually do bring up deep psychology and psychoanalysis. We bring it into the fray to, to add it to this discussion because it's forgotten by so many people. And so that was the unique thing. And we were studying Gustav Le Bon's book. We did whole shows on it, analyzing it. I've even got a few quotes coming up for you. Um, and what I wanted to establish was where this idea originally came out on a podcast. It wasn't on Joe Rogan. That just had more people watching it. It was on Unslaved. And it was on Unslaved. And the reason it was, in my opinion, a better analysis was because when we talk about these subjects, we never eliminate the hidden hand aspect of it, whereas these other guys will. So they'll look at the same data and go, yep, people form groups whenever there's mass chaos or whenever there's a calamity or whenever there's a disease going around or whenever there's a war and this is what happened and it's the roots of totalitarianism. And so much of that analysis is extremely valuable, even for you. That's understanding that it's even bigger than that. So... In, the sh in this episode, that's how you're going to see it roll out. And that's what it was. And then I did a bit. It's a clip from an interview that I did with um, Kid Carson on the Kid Carson podcast. And my wife sent it to me and she said, this is my favorite interview you've ever done. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. She's like, you were really chill. It was really good. You broke it down. It hit home. So you got to put something from this in the, in this chapter. I was like, okay. So I found that clip and I found the clip where I now took it to the next level where I'm saying what we learned, what I learned on Unslaved, which was this is a known science of how to create artificially, how to manufacture and how to induce what they're calling mass formation. It's just a dynamic 
that is natural to us humans because of our tribal collectivistic nature. There's an aspect of that. They're just what I read it as is it's not just some natural phenomena that's unfolding in the way they described it, uh, just because there's some trauma going on, but that this was a part of this planned global coup d'etat that Archbishop Vigano was talking about, right? So that's why you have to think of it in a little more nuanced terms. You have to see the track of how it went and what's really going on and then how it rolls out and what the reasons are behind it. So there it is. That's why. So I'm with you guys that this isn't just some phenomena of psychology that, and then that's the end of it, period, end of statement. Um, I'm, I'm a conspiracy fact researcher. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't uh, disagree with that at all. I think that when we get into some of these mind control experiments and the information that these elite people have on how we operate as humans, what we're seeing is not always direct conspiracies and interventions, but little things that trigger responses that they already know are going to come out of humanity naturally. So they know we're going to react with mass formation. They know that they have the science, they have all the psychoanalysts on the chessboard. They know it all. So all they're doing is guiding that process when that process gets ignited, next phase, next phase, next phase. And that's just, it's warfare. We're in fifth generation warfare, right? That's the new fancy term everybody likes now, fifth generation warfare, um, asymmetric warfare, whatever you want to call it, mental warfare. So I'm just trying to analyze it for you guys and give you all the different flavors and put it out to the public so that those seasoned researchers can learn a few things and go and keep, I didn't put as much detail as I wish I could in some of those bits. We'll go into some of that here um, and future shows, but just little breadcrumbs to go, guys, I'm looking at this, the invisible college, the Royal society. I've gone so far in researching them. I've got lots of data on them. We're going to go through some of it, but all of you astute researchers and anons and diggers out there, help me out, go follow up on that trail and see if you find anything in there and then let me know. That's what this is. That's what these chapters are. It's a discussion that we're all having mixed with the history of the time that I'm producing these chapters in. And that's why I try to condense. I dedicate like a month or two for each chapter. And I try to put pieces of what's actually going on live in that time period in the chapter. Cause it's like a little, every chapter is a little time capsule so that we can remember looking back. Oh yeah, that was when everybody started talking about this mass formation thing. We've looked at it more. Now we know uh, even more than what we knew when Malone went on Rogan, right? And, and so this is going to help future researchers. That's the whole point. Okay. So I hope I've explained myself on that one. Um, and uh, I appreciate the feedback and the criticism. Maybe we could be a little, uh, uh, I don't know, respectful about it, but I don't even care. But that's it. That's all I wanted to say about that one. Let me know what you think. So this is this, this is it then. This is my thesis in this chapter is that mass formation, as it's now called, is actually the result of mass mind control. Mass mind control, which is inferring something that was done on purpose, something that was guided into being to achieve a result. They're doing an experiment. We were told this is the new normal. It's the new mass human experiment. They have a goal of where they want the experiment to end up which is transhumanism and obviously a global technocracy. So if you're going to achieve that, as I stated, I think I stated it in this chapter as well at some point, once again, 
which is if you want to know what the big grand conspiracy is, it's as simple as we want to control land resources and wealth. And if we want to take control of that land resources and wealth, we need to control the people that live on the land, live near the resources and that create the wealth. It's a very simple equation. And what better way to achieve that than to understand mass psychology and human psychology dynamics so that you can manipulate them. And to me, that's the definition of mind control. So there it is. So just to give you a little sampling of this book, I've always referenced it. Just go read it. So if you, if you go to the sources of where these academics get their ideas, okay? And one of them is Gustav Le Bon. He wrote this in 1896 in his book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. A civilization involves fixed rules, discipline, a passing from the instinctive to the rational state, forethought for the future, an elevated degree of culture, and all of them conditions that crowds, the masses, when left to themselves, and there's been many experiments where everybody's just been left to themselves, have invariably shown themselves incapable of realizing. In consequence of the purely destructive nature of their power, crowds can act like those microbes which hasten the dissolution of unfeebled or dead bodies. When the structure of a civilization is rotten, okay, so when it's rotten, when it becomes rotten either by just natural decay and everybody's getting lazy, nobody's paying attention, or by fifth generation warfare, infiltration instead of invasion, global conspiracy, right? However it is, when civilization becomes rotten, it is always the masses that bring about its downfall. This is very interesting to note. It is at such a juncture that their chief mission is plainly visible and that for a while the philosophy of number seems, only, seems the only philosophy of history is the same fate in store for our civilization. And yes, it's true. So now you don't get thrown off by the fact that he's comparing crowds to microbes, okay? It, he's saying that it's like he's trying to talk about it as there's a process that under that happens where we humans in groups, cultures, civilizations, tribes, whatever, when we're in a state where our civilization or our premise becomes rotten, we gravitate back to destruction, not creation in many cases, because how could you go to a point of elevated creation and genius and thinking about freedom and these beautiful things unless all men become good and wise, right? Hey, when all men become good and wise, said Percy Shelley, government of its own will decay. We won't need it anymore. You only need it, and if you need it, it's a sign that we're not quite good and wise just yet, and we're talking en masse, right? Individuals like you and I could be very moral, very awake to what's going on, very, um, you know, working on ourselves and all of that, right? But we're talking about how they're studying mass movements and this keeps getting proven every single time. This is what he's saying. So there's mechanisms that can be employed to take advantage of what he's showing you. He's just giving you the blueprint here. He's not giving you the whole thing, okay? So look at this. When the structure of a civilization is rotten, it is always the masses that bring about, bring about its downfall. What are we seeing, guys? Not you and I, the masses, the general public. The structure of our civilization in the West has become rotten. It might not have started out that way, but it's like that right now. 
All the burning and looting in the streets, the rising crime, poverty. Um, look what we just witnessed with this last period of time we're living in. So if, if he's saying, and I'll bet you all the elites have his book on the shelf too, when the structure of civilization gets rotten, it's always the masses that bring about the downfall. So if you had a goal to bring down a civilization and you knew how this dynamic worked, you now have a new round in the chamber to fire at your enemy. Because all you got to do is turn the civilization rotten and encourage it. Either it's like a mold over time. Some guys see this like the destruction of, of freedom and virtue and goodness and prosperity and, and truth and transparency and all these beautiful things that there's like a force in nature, like mold that just comes in and just starts to swallow it up. When, and how do you prevent mold? You have to prevent the mold from coming. You have to actually do something. Otherwise nature takes its course. So to preserve these virtues, there has to be health, meaning healthy ideas, healthy family unit, healthy philosophy, healthy scientific institution. Health, like there has to be health going on in the society for the conditions of freedom, truth, and justice to remain. If you don't want truth, freedom, and justice to rule because you're a criminal gang that wants to take over the land resources and the wealth, you got to control the people. What better way to control the people than to put than to regress people, to put things in the culture through the media, through the Hollywood, through these things, put things in the food supply, in the like over time, these chemicals, the GMOs, all this stuff we talk about. These little elements that you can work on to slowly erode that civilization, to rot it. And then they don't have to come in with tanks and guns. They don't have to come in with the Gestapo anymore. Because we'll do it to ourselves at that point. Do you see what I mean? I'm just trying to explain. This is one theory as to what their theory of humanity is. And by they, I mean the social engineers and the technocrats. And the eugenicists and the people that believe there's too many humans running around. You can get an idea of how they think of us now. What, what the premise of their thinking. So when when the structure of a civilization becomes rotten which it has by both elements both humanity in general becoming more lazy becoming less in, less then we don't really love knowledge and wisdom we've lost the connection to the lessons of history we are becoming more unhealthy physically mentally emotionally all those things are a sign of the rot of our civilization most people are like monkey see monkey do I'll just do what everybody else is doing without thinking about it, which is what we just witnessed. And we're still witnessing it, guys. I wouldn't say this if I started to see less masked people running around out there. But I'm not. I'm seeing more now, again, coming back. Because why? Because they created a vacuum and they're refilling the vacuum with something else. Civilization has become rotten. People are now living in fear. They've successfully altered human behavior in the last three years. Think of that. They've successfully altered human behavior. The pubs aren't as full as they were, even though there's no mandates. The, the events are not as big as they used to be. You walk around and businesses are closed and everything looks starting to look like a third world country. People are just more introverted. Even trying to get together with friends is a little bit harder because everybody just kind of wants to be left alone now. Our social connection is starting to become fried because of three years of what we just went through, traumatized 
people is what we all are. All of us are. Me, you, the normie up the street wearing two masks alone in their car. All of us are traumatized in one way, shape, or form. That has altered our behavior, all of us. So they've achieved one aspect of their agenda. And then they know all they got to do is set the stage. And then we, by our nature of being traumatized, living in fear, having our rug pulled out from under our feet by all these things, we bring down the rest of civilization ourselves. And that's what they want. It has to be an act of our will. So they can only, black magicians, and I'm going to get into black magic in a, in a bit. Black magicians can only influence. They can't directly change things. Because there's laws in this universe. There's laws of nature. There's laws of human psychology. There's laws of just how things work that they know they can't directly do it. They got to get us to do it. We're the ones that lined up and took all those shots. We're the ones that stood on those X's and stayed apart and listened to what we were told without thinking, even though there was lots of information available to all of us to show us that this was going to be more harm, is going to cause more harm than good, and there's something else going on. So I just wanted to point that out. When you read a Gustav Laban, you're just getting their psychological profile, and he wrote this in the late 1800s, of how the masses work because they studied mass movements all over the world. It didn't matter what culture you came from, what race you came from, what religion you came from, what background you came from. Didn't matter. It's a, it's a certainty, a mathematical certainty that when the stage is set, the masses bring down the civilization. Rome didn't get taken over just because of a bit of corruption. It was a relationship between the tyrants and the people, an eroding that took place that eventually finally brought it down. And this information is actually empowering, and I'll tell you why. Because it means when we become aware of this, when you and me and more people become aware of this dynamic, now we're aware of this trick. We're aware of how it's done, and we can change course. If we go blindly into the night, not acknowledging this, then they'll stay one, they'll keep staying steps ahead. Okay, so that's that's where we're coming from when we're talking mass formation psychosis. But I see your mass formation psychosis, you little ac academics. God love you. And I raise you the actual science of mass control and social engineering. All right. So it's the idea that it's not all random and just based on a natural flow, that this process can indeed be induced and created artificially if you wanted it to. The, the science is in. People of dictators have used this. Cult leaders have used this. That's why this information is so powerful. So this is where you get to the next stage. You can't get to this stage until we go through the stages I just mentioned. Okay. So a quick recap. This is from the intro by Jim Keith. I believe they killed him after this book. He was a whistleblower. And he came out and said, since the beginning of recorded history, men have lusted after control of their fellows. The impulse seemingly part of the makeup of the half ape, half angel that we call human. Until modern times, brute force, propaganda, and religion were the most successful methods for the manipulation of human beings. But by the turn of this century, coercive methodology had advanced far beyond the sword. The inflammatory slogan and the stick and the carrot of heaven and hell. I just want to check my chat real quick. Sorry, guys. Just want to make sure. 
I'm not getting, okay, everybody can hear me. Perfect. All right. Now in the 20th century, scientists in the pay of governments and other moneyed interests have made technical breakthroughs that render actual mind control feasible and on a nigh universal scale. Invasive control techniques have been fine-tuned to the point where the controllers are literally able to get inside our heads and to command us. Remember that uh, Jose Delgado quote that I put in chapter three? If you go to the part in chapter three where there's like the lightning clouds, <laughs> I was just flying through the lightning clouds, Dr. Jose Delgado, go read some quotes from that psychopath to understand what Jim Keith is talking about here. They are able to tinker with our humanness, to manipulate it. So he's saying they're able to tinker with our humanity, guys. They're manipulating forces that you have in, inside of you. All of us have the propensity for lies and truth, for ignorance or for knowledge, to get up in the morning and make something of yourself or to be a lazy ass and not do anything with yourself. You have the, you have the ability to channel both good and evil, up and down, left and right, everything. Okay, that's you're you're like a, a piano that has access to all the keys, the minor keys, the major keys, all the scales. And then there's this thing we call you that is the conductor of that piano. And what you start by your will start to play is going to determine whether it has resonance, whether the music makes sense and sounds good or whether it's not. And they know how to manipulate this. That's what he's saying. Okay. So they're able to tinker with our humanness, to manipulate it, to destroy it if they choose. They are able to use high-tech networks of electronic entrainment and broadcasting whose nature has not even been hinted of in the mass media, since the mass media itself is employed in the exact same manner for the manipulation of the populace. Even the subject of mind control in the media is mentioned only in the context of science fiction or is derided as the delusions of the crazy aluminum hat crowd. Never mind that those guys might be actually onto something. <laughs> okay. Next. Now the powerful in their quest for a totalitarian state are provided with unprecedented access and control of our minds and humanity to do with as they wilt. So he's, he's mentioning here, guys, we know for a fact to all the people that are still going to just call you a conspiracy nut. For a fact, we know that they have access to this knowledge, that they did experiments for decades, if not centuries, to learn more about this knowledge of specifically how to manipulate the opinions, the behaviors, and the habits of the public mind. Not to just be there as good shepherds of humanity to guide the natural forces and make sure that humans stay good and moral and virtuous, but to guide them to the direction that they want everybody to go. This knowledge is the most valuable knowledge in this world. If you want power and control, if you want power and control, you want to know this knowledge. So we know they have it. The only debate that we could have would be as to whether or not they are actually employing this knowledge. I say yes. And that's the difference between me and the people that are calling me a conspiracy theorist is they say, no, big brother would never do that. That's the difference. It's literally that simple. Okay. Many suspect that there is an overarching philosophy that has been engineered 
or that has been engineering the crises and chaos of the latter portion of the 20th century. And I believe that they are right. There are forces working behind the scenes, working to promote a new world order, not significantly different than the nega utopian world state described in George Orwell's 1984. So if this elite is cold-blooded enough to have calculated had calculatedly created war, famine, and designer disease, designer disease, hmm, as many suspect that they have, what qualms would discourage them from creating worldwide mind control? This book is meant to portray certain aspects of the history of the world, mind control, its evolution, and the political currents that have historically dictated its directions. I will not pretend that it is a definitive or the last word on the subject, and it is probably not even the last word that I will have to say on the topic, he says. The book is, however, intended to offer perspective on the present day that is rarely provided in the controlled mainstream media. That's why I love people like Jim Keith, because they're not trying to convert you. They're just like, I'm just here to present it. I am not even putting the last word on it. But shall we begin? Let me show you some stuff you've probably never seen. And that's why um, I still have so much respect for the man. And may he rest in peace. He tried to warn humanity. Um, so... That's sort of the feature. I would say that covers the feature concept of chapter nine is that I did a lot on group dynamics, mass mind control, and we have to talk about mass formation and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, how to put that in film is always a puzzle. I'm not saying I did a perfect job at it, but that was my crack at it. Okay. And hopefully this episode will help uh, add some more context to what you're seeing in the film. Okay. Now, there's another bit that I go into, and some people might just look at it. What's this tangent about getting into these cults like Process Church of the Final Judgment? You know, what does that have to do with Anthony Fauci? Like, that's somebody wrote me that. What is, what is this weird cult from LA that doesn't even exist anymore have to do with Anthony Fauci? Well, you could just ask the question and we could get into it, or you could keep shouting at me. It's up to you. But here it is. Here it is. Here's the connection. Let's study it a little bit because the reason I wanted to bring up Maury Terry is he's another controversial character, but in my opinion, a brilliant investigator who was on to something. And I don't even know if he knew what he stumbled into by the end of it, but he was on to something here. Okay. So this is just, I put this in a little analysis of the process church. I find it interesting that their name is process, the process Maybe just say something quick on that before I do this one. The process. The name of your cult is called the process? The process of what? What are you processing? Well, it's the process of how to take over human minds and direct them for your will, <laughs> towards your will. It's black magic. That's what they did. They were a satanic cult that engaged in recruiting people who were already probably, they probably already had the psych profile of all of these people because there's a lot of information that could lead to the conclusion that some of our favorite alphabet agencies, the cult of intelligence, were involved in a lot of these freaky cults that were going on in Los Angeles throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and God knows continuing. That a lot of this stuff going on that Maury Terry was stumbling into as an investigator in this book, The Ultimate Evil, which I can't recommend enough, he's getting into something. And I also hinted at, and this is what I'm doing in the series, I'm hinting at some of these dark satanic networks in the background of this medical cult and all this stuff that's going on. And some people are still scratching, their head, where are we going with that? It's to lay the foundation that evil does exist in the world, number one, 
And number two, that these aren't just cults that are recruiting a bunch of discontents on the lower level. These are, that's, that's just the lower stage of that Luciferian network, if you want to call it that, right? Or, or that's that freaky black magician cult stuff, suicide cults, rape, murder, torture, human trafficking, bringing it all in ritual sacrifice, these kinds of things, you know, trying to bring entities in from other dimensions and channel them and all this crazy stuff that we see about in the movies. We hear little hints about people like Maury Terry and Ted Gunderson, who I put in chapter six, um, brought up and it's just little hints like, Ted Gunderson, he's the FBI director of Los Angeles at the time. He starts doing some investigations of his own free will on his own free time. He starts looking at some of these cases. He starts unveiling an entire satanic network that was preying on children and grooming people into elite positions in the FBI, in major networks, media, government. And he got in, then he found the whole thing about this agenda for a, a world government, new world order. And he started talking about it. Same with Maury Terry. He didn't quite go to that level, but he stumbled into this, can, these weird connections between what was reported by the media of like Charles Manson and the slaying of um, Alice Perry, Sharon Tate, Fred, Count, like all these people, right? These random weird killings in Hollywood. And he found connective tissue between these groups. There wasn't a separation between the Process Church, the Manson Group, um, Heaven's Gate, uh, some of these other ones. I don't know if he got into Heaven's Gate. That's my assumption. Is there something there too? Um, but this is where, oh, Son of Sam is the other one. He thought, God forbid, a reporter puts a few I dots together and goes, guys, I kind of think there's a connection between all these killings. The media just destroyed him. So don't even think about believing what Wicca bullshit is saying about this man. Go read the book yourself. Here's a, here's the little preamble to the book in towns throughout America. They came face to face with the ultimate evil. August, 1969, Sharon Tate and six others are massacred Northwest of Los Angeles by followers of Charles Manson. October, 1974, Alice Perry is the victim of a perverse ritual murder in a chapel on the Stanford University campus. February 1977, Fred Cowan murders six people before killing himself during a day-long siege at the Neptune Moving Company in New Rochelle, New York. July 1976 to August 1977, New York City is terrorized as the Son of Sam murders leave six dead and seven wounded. February of 1978, John Carr is found shot under questionable circumstances in Minot, North Dakota. October 1978, John's brother Michael dies in a suspicious car crash in New York City. December 1981, Joseph Carraza is shot twice with a 38 caliber revolver in New Rochelle, New York. July 1983, the long-dead corpse of missing movie producer Roy Radin turns up in a California desert. November 1984, 16-year-old Teresa Fusco is abducted, raped, strangled, and dumped nude in a wooded area in Lybrook, Long Island, and the evil one to kill again. Son of Sam slayings. We got the Charles Manson murders, the bizarre ritual killing of Arliss Perry. Now, an award-winning investigative reporter shows how one cult was responsible for mass murder. So Maury Terry, before he wrote this book, was an award-winning investigative reporter. After he wrote this book, just like all the others, 
he is a quack that doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's an alcoholic, and he's a dry, and on and on you go. We could never confirm his findings. Oh, yeah? <laughs> We're talking about a network that wide, powerful, and undiscovered until this moment, and you think they can't buy people off? How naive you got to be, right? So just to finish this little intro, in this chilling expose, journalist Maury Terry reveals startling new evidence, which shows that David Berkowitz, the self-confessed son of Sam, did not kill alone. And you know, he didn't, he said it himself in his own interviews. He did not kill alone, but was in fact a trigger man for the process church. A satanic cult whose deadly influence reaches across America from New York City to Beverly Hills and countless towns in between. And I just got to say this really quick. Did you make the connection? I put it in there. I didn't expand on it, but I put it there for anybody paying attention. Did you pay attention to where the process church cult came from? Where they came from? They came from London, England to America. And there's some interesting connections that I'll have to do a whole show on that I'm still gathering research for as to their actual origin and who financed them. And I think it has to do with some nameless, faceless uh, <laughs> organizations that I'm not really going to name on this live stream. But that's for another time. So just to let you know, there's a connection there to this whole thing, okay? And I'm not knocking people from London, England. I love you. I'm talking about very specific uh, satanic networks that are very elite and very ancient that live and operate within England. Okay. We got to be honest about it. So I think there's a connection. Son of Sam. Oh wait, what's this? Uh, where was I Yeah, A satanic cult whose deadly influence reaches across America from New York to Beverly Hills. The arrest of Berkowitz officially closed the son of Sam case, but Terry saw too many discrepancies to let it rest. Here, for the first time, he presents the shocking results of his extensive investigation, including substantial proof that the Tate, La Bianca, and Arliss Perry murders, as well as the slew of other unsolved deaths, can be traced to the brutal practices of the process. Keep in mind, with all of these killings and all of these groups, we only hear about what was actually proven to be connected to them or admitted. The numbers could be far bigger and we could also be looking at this as this cult has cells. So the process church could literally just be one of the cells of a greater octopus that goes all the way up to the tippy top. It's a story so powerful that it convinced Queens District Attorney John L. Stantucci to reopen the Son of Sam case. It's a story of evil so pervasive it is almost too terrifying to contemplate. For today, the process is very much alive and still killing. This is when, at the time of the writing. The book is important reading for the nation as it may sensitize society to a sinister force at work within. By writing about it, Terry may have thwarted the ultimate evil he describes. So by bringing conscious awareness to the American mind at this time, he may have started, he may have actually thwarted some of it. We're hoping anyways. And by continuing to expose this network, bringing them to the light, we're thwarting that. If they stay hidden and everything's random and the media still gets to have its heyday of reporting nonsense, then they're going to be active. And we can't route this criminal network out. And by the way, this preamble was written by District Attorney John Stantucci himself. Okay. So just want to put that little connection in. 
And then here's an interesting quote from Maury Terry himself in the book, and I've got some thoughts on it. Okay, so it might strike you the wrong way when I first read it, but I'm going to come back and add some context for you. Okay, he said, I think we believe in the specter of organized evil to make sense of aberrant behaviors that we don't understand and to protect us from a far more unsettling notion that this malevolence we fear does exist and it lives deep inside each and every one of us waiting to emerge. In the end, is it not more terrifying to accept that there is no grand conspiracy? no structure, no organization, no method to the madness that haunts us all, that there is only rudderless chaos, to me, that is the ultimate evil. Now, he's speculating here. He's speculating on it. He's thinking, imagine, right? Because he noticed something. And this is, this is something that I still bang my head up against the wall trying to explain, is there's, two, there's a twofold root to evil and tyranny happening right now. One, it's not one or the other. It's actually a relationship between the two. That's why I think there's a connection between what I was talking about with all that Gustav Lebon mass formation stuff and mind control. Those are the two things. There's, it's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. Same with this. You've got a network. So here he is. The whole book is about him unveiling a specter of organized evil and organized crime. That's the whole book. That's the whole point of the book. Yet he has the insight to also reflect on the other side and say, I think people also in a weird way get comforted by the fact that it's all organized because it allows them to not address the malevolence that is a potentiality in themselves. And that there is also an element of chaos involved. It's not just an organized grand conspiracy, and it's also not just random chaos. It's both meeting and forming a relationship. Does that make sense? I hope that clears that up. And the ultimate evil is the denial of that. So you can, re you got to look at the context of the whole book and when he starts to talk about it. But I, I actually really liked this quote. It reminded me of the quote that came from Solzhenitsyn when he said something very similar. And it makes me almost wonder if Maury Terry had read some Solzhenitsyn, you know, in his quest as he's studying evil. And you can see even in the interviews that he did, go watch the interview he did with the son of Sam. He, you can still see it on YouTube. Just go look it up. Maury Terry interviews Berkowitz or interviews son of Sam. He's so good at it. The way he asks the questions, the way he, he, just his demeanor, he had the insight to be able to point out the other side of it, which is that evil and good are a potential that strikes through the heart of every human being. I put that quote from Solzhenitsyn, I think in either chapter two or three, can't remember, probably chapter three. Because I didn't want to just go, it's just this organized super conspiracy of a cult of emetics that comes from the ancient times and they're all black magicians and they wear these robes and they're, there's definitely some of that, okay? It's 100%. But that force is completely disempowered, has no power whatsoever. All the rituals they do, all the money they have, all that wouldn't mean shit if they didn't have raving fans. That's what we don't want to know about. We don't want to know about our part in this. And this, is, again, isn't to go the other way and come at everybody and make everybody feel guilty. We've been, our civilization has been rotted out partially 
by a facet of nature and human nature, and also by design. It's both. The design factor, the manipulators, the conspirators, the black magicians, the top black lodges, that is only one part of the relationship. You need to have the other side of the relationship or there's not going to be any spaghetti sauce, okay? <laughs> you got to have both. So twofold root. This was brought up in Michael Tessarian's documentary, Architects of Control. If you haven't seen that film, go watch it. If you're on Unslaved, it's there available for you guys. But go watch it. Go try to find it. Architects of Control. He breaks the whole, that's the whole film is about this dynamic I'm talking about. And he said it, there's a twofold route. One is mankind's penchant for ignoring themselves, having this inner fear and hating themselves and wanting to be ruled. And the other is that there's lots of tyrants and psychopaths that are like, I'll be the guy for the job. You want to be ruled? I'll be your ruler. And people go, yay, we got a ruler. And they don't think, what if this guy's a satanic psychopath or some shit? Like what? Where are we going? So that is the point of, that's the, if you want to know what a, one of the underlying currents are that are just sort of hinted at here and there in my series, this is one of them, is the dynamics of evil. What is evil? What's the root of evil? How does it work? And we can't, in one sense, just keep blaming ourselves the way, you know, the religions want you to just whip yourself into being a good moral person and keep obeying all the rules or otherwise you're evil and you're going to be damned to hellfire. There's that angle. They tried that and what did it do but just cause further trauma in the human mind and everybody went freaking mad with it. Or you deny it entirely, right? So there's just extremes. You got to look at it as two. There's the tyrants and the psychopaths and the cult leaders and the serial killers and the Satanists and the child sacrificers and the, just think of all the, the worst you can imagine, okay? But they're out of business. If we don't care about it, and if you don't even care to address evil and identify it, then they're going to keep working in the shadows and being criminals and doing what criminals do. What do they say? Criminals survive when good people do nothing. Why do good people do nothing? That's the question we never got to ask. That sentence just finishes. Evil exists because good people do nothing. All right, guys, back to the football game. Like, wait, why do good people keep doing nothing? Look at the, what we just saw. Good people keep doing nothing. There's a few always, thank God. Otherwise we'd be toast. But in mass, most people just sit there like a deer in the headlights and do nothing. They don't even research this stuff. And they're the ones with the loudest opinions on it. It's hilarious. But it's not just rudderless chaos, but it's also not just all designed and, and grand conspiracy. It's both. So I hope I drove that point home. I can't recommend reading that book. And another reason I put that bit about the process church in chapter nine is I wanted to give you the process of how and why people join into the cults and what are, what are some of the things that happen. This process of mind control is, it's a process. It's not just a open and shut, easy explanation. The process of taking over the world and controlling all the land resources and people, there's a process to it. So I found it interesting that they actually named the cult the process. So I just wanted to give you context for when we're talking cult of medics and how they created a global cult brand out of what we've experienced, it helps to study actual cults and how they tick and where they went and how that all worked out. 
so that you can have the context for what's happening right now. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Now moving on. I have a feeling this is going to be a longer show guys. We've got more to go through here, but here we go. There's also this factor to it, right? The idea of stagecraft and particular in this context here, stagecraft, the crafting of the narrative for the public mind. Somebody's crafting it. I was hinting that that with that Bernays quote that I did to one of my favorite songs ever, Arrival by Laserhawk. Um, <laughs> when he's talking about it is they who pull the wires that control the public mind, you know, just giving you an idea that there is a stagecraft that's happening. You know, all the world's a stage, right? Because the st and when they're talking all the world's a stage, guys, I don't think they're talking about the physical world. They're talking about the world of the mind. The human mind is the stage and they need to do a performance for your mind so that you believe the magic, you believe the hypnotism. So here we go. Edward Bernays, any person or organization depends ultimately on public approval. And the reason that is, is because they know that the people have the power, guys. We have the numbers, we have the power. So any person or organization ultimately depends on public approval and is therefore faced with the problem of engineering the public's consent to a program or a goal. Now he's writing about this, of course, as if this is a this benevolent science that needs to be known by the media and the government to make men good and wise. That's his argument. But of course, he comes from the elite cloth of all these guys, and this is how they view us, us plebs, is that we need to engineer the public's consent. Notice they put the word consent in there. He put the word consent. That's an interesting thing when we get to the black magic section. They need to engineer your consent. They still get you to consent to them. Even though you didn't get informed consent, they're getting your consent because you're still doing everything they're telling you, even though you know it's wrong. That's why I put the ash experiment clip in there where they're actually telling you, look, the ash experiment where they had all these guys uh, in the room that were actors. There was a guy in there, didn't know he's surrounded by actors. They're asked to pick out what the longest line is or what all these patterns are. It's obviously number two, but everybody's picking number three. And the guy's looking around the room. He's like, why the hell is everybody picking number three? It's clearly number two. He tries to be the outsider for one second and say, you know, I think it's actually number two. And then they keep doing it. No, it's number three. It's number three. It's number three. And they finally, he's like, okay, it's number three. And what did they prove in that? Ash experiments been repeated numerous times in different cultures, in different times and places. And it's always the same result that we humans will conform to the group. Even if we disagree with them, even if they're running off the edge of a cliff. So you just need to learn an art form called engineering the mass mind and you can take over the bloody world. How is that crazy? How is that not even on the table of discussion for so many people? And I think it's because it points to something that they would just prefer not to admit. Stagecraft, how to craft mass formation psychosis, how to create it as the real virus. That's what we're at. Now, just want to quickly go through, I'm not going to bore you to death with Britannica here, but just a quick little, I found a few interesting things. There's a whole history you can go read about uh, the history of stagecraft. And they're talking about theatrical, you know, opera houses and the Victorian era and the magicians, stage magicians and how this whole thing. But I just found this a little bit interesting. 
In the mid-1800s, a movement that was to reshape the theatrical world began. So there was a shift in the 1800s, okay? Keep track of the dates here. This movement was called realism. Realism. Which began partly as a reaction to the melodramas of the late 18th and 19th centuries, produced some of the first plays that focused on social issues and the lives of ordinary citizens rather than on the actions of the aristocracy and the monarchs. This shift of the thematic focus caused a major innovation in scenery. Realism demanded sets that more faithfully reproduced everyday life. Beginning in the mid-1870s, realistic interior and exterior design sets proliferated, and the level of spectacle seemed determined only by the scenic budget. Hey, keep going through the whole thing. But the reason I thought this was interesting, that there was a shift in theatrical performance in the 1800s. As technology's changing, industrial revolution, all this whole time, you know, was mid-1800s. Now we're getting into the era of Tesla as we're coming in, right? And this whole thing. So the theatrical world began to change from very obviously melodramatic plays that didn't really conform with reality, but were just known as this is the escape, this is the comedy, this is what's known in every tribal culture. They have little theatrical things that they do for communicating that side of us, that performer side of us. There's an art form to it. There's a whole thing. And it's amazing. I love that, right? But I'm just noticing something that could be taken advantage of here, which is that if their movement was to reshape theat the theatrical world for more realism, there's two ways of looking at it. If you just think everything is just totally benign and it's totally cool, uh, then for the realism, I guess that's more appealing to people because it 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 better reflects. If you go to the theater and that stage set looks more realistic, it's more believable. And therefore your escape from reality is more pronounced, right? Whereas if you're sitting there watching some guy with a stick, like a broomstick and like a paper cut out of a horse walking around, you know, and like they're clearly it's a joke, right? But if they could start making the horses look more real and they could make the sets look more dimensional and all that, then they can create real performances for you. So in that sense, great. It's an evolution of theatrical production. They're up in their game, better definition, better sound studios, better lights, better trained actors that look more realistic and feel more realistic. But look at what they're doing with Hollywood. It never stopped since the 1800s. Now we're pushing into the realm of, what are we at, like 14K now? Like it used to be like 4K. I, I don't know what K we're at like in terms of definition of videos, the immersive IMAX with the goggles on and the whole thing where you're in the movie now, hyper-realism, which can be entertaining. I've been to some of these films. It's pretty entertaining to watch fish floating past your head and whatever the hell. But if you want to use stagecraft and manipulate it and you want to in, put in propaganda like Bernays is telling people around the same time. We need these mechanisms to control the public mind, guys. You're like, well, well, how do we do this? We need to get their belief. We need them to believe in us. We need to be more real than everything else. If we're more real, humans will naturally gravitate to us because we now, our propaganda and our stagecraft mirrors the reality that they're comfortable with. 
which is the reality, the real reality. So the more we can mirror reality, the more we can attract people in. And I guess on one level, they're just making more money. And that's probably what a lot of them were doing it for. But I'm not after that. I'm talking about the big lodges, the hidden invisible colleges that are looking to find advantages on the chessboard constantly. And one advantage would to change. It's kind of like when in Germany, they change the actual tone frequency of theatrical performances and music and all of that. You remember all that with Goebbels and, the, and they found the vibration that they keep, they put the musical tones out and the speaker tones out actually have a sort of lullaby effect on the human psyche. If you change the frequency, I can't remember all the, the I'm that's, I'm not, I don't have my notes on that, but it just, this kind of reminds me there was a shift. So you make it more hyper real. Now you're more believable. So now whatever plays you're putting on, whatever operas you're putting on, you can inject propaganda in there. And now people are going to, because of the realism of the stage set and the actors and the whole performance, they're not even going to notice the propaganda and they're going to identify it and attach their consciousness to it because it looks like the real world. So this is a, a mechanism that can be exploited. That's all I'm saying. It's not just nefarious and evil and all this. It's just an aspect that can be exploited by propagandists, which is what they did. They're still doing today. So just want to get into that stagecraft, how to manipulate it. It's a science that's age old and they've been learning a lot of lessons as they've gone. Okay. Now let's move to another section here. The dancing plague. So this explains it. This is your mass hysteria, the dancing plague of the medieval times that I did a little stint in there. David Bowie and Mick Jagger dancing in the streets, right? Uh, where all these people are dancing in the streets to their deaths. It was a manic, hysterical plague that went around. And I found it very interesting that whether this was some kind of a subconscious hint or a mockery, sort of, a, I, I felt like all these dancing nurses and doctors, whether the people involved knew it or not, I felt, I took that as an insult, as a mockery. I took it as a mockery. That's how I took it. I don't know what you guys, but in a way they're almost hinting that they know this. They they're like, we know we're creating mass hysteria and you're going to dance like puppets to your graves. You're going to dance like puppets into our coffers. And so we're going to dance for you to tell you that that's what you're going to do. And later you're going to repeat it because that's how hypnosis works. They implant suggestion and then you do it. Also, it's a phenomena of this mass hysteria, this mass formation that there's like, we take out our inner contradictions in a physical form. And instead of looking at reality, we make a game out of it and turn everything into a circus. And that's part of this ritual. So if there's a ritual element to this, I always keep jumping back to the dancing nurses and the connection to the dancing nurses that we saw at the 2012 Olympic Games just as a symbolic thing that you start to go, hmm, interesting. What an amazing coincidence. So the dancing plague to me just had so much emphasis. I don't want to belabor it too much. I have so much more to go through, but go check out that section. And that was what uh, Tessarian called it in 2020. It's dancing plague. It's the same concept. It's mass hysteria, and they just know how to create it. Very simple. And then there you go, the ash experiment. And this is just, that's why, that's why people keep lining up for cults. Even if they think they're crazy, they're like, I don't care if it's crazy. I just want to be a part of a cult. 
I need to be part of a group. I, I don't have a good, strong family unit. I didn't have a great relationship with my parents. Big brother will do. Or if not big brother, fine. Jim Jones, sign me up. I just want to be a part of a cult because I just can't live alone. I can't think alone. I can't operate alone. Individuation is just too strenuous. I need to conform because I'm afraid inside and I'm traumatized inside. So give me the sale salvation. Show me the way. And think of every cult you can imagine and think about why people signed on to this new COVID cult. Because they weren't really, it's not about their opinion to do with studying disease and studying this phenomena, studying what happened and looking at peer-reviewed journals and people. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with the jabs. It had nothing to do with the masks. It had nothing to do with what people thought it had anything to do. Deep down, they were seeking conformity. They wanted conformity, especially when they were terrified. So all they had to do was terrify the hell out of everybody and everybody will move out of their individuated consciousness and immediately seek the nearest crowd. Where's the nearest crowd? I'm afraid. There's a boogeyman. What do we do? They're changing the world. I need a crowd to feel secure with. And I'm not saying it's totally some kind of negative thing. It's just a natural thing that they know is going to happen. They know, they know this. They know this at the top. I'm reading it from their own books and the people that inform them, these elites. They know that you're going to do that. So they just know how to think ahead of the curve and guide you like the way they, they don't force sheep and cattle into the pens. They don't force them at gunpoint. They guide them. They guide them in and then nature takes its course. That's all that's happening here. Important dynamic to understand. All right. Let's go there. Let's go there. So now I'm going to come back before we jump into this bit. I didn't want to make this debate a feature of the film because I just want people to open their minds, look at all the angles, decide for themselves, and we can talk about this here. So there's a raging debate in all of what's going on right now as to how disease spreads amongst human beings. Is it external particles, viruses, germs, bacterias that are transferring from one human to another by way of uh, air germs or whatever, or, uh, you know, I spit on you or I sneeze on you and then you catch a bit of that germ and then your body integrates it and you get sick or however, or is it all purely terrain? Is it all psychosomatic? Um, and again, I think with this discussion, all sides have a valid argument to bring to the table and we should look at all of it because we're all trying to figure this out. So I'm not saying anything. I have my own opinions on these things because a lot of it's informed by own, my own personal life experience. And I'm also completely infallible. So don't even listen to me. I'm just going to present to you a few ideas here. Okay. And I'm going to give some points to the sort of no virus crowd. Um, because we're going to get into the work of Wilhelm Reich, but I'm also going to then finish with him presenting a much more nuanced theory in his day so that we can maybe bridge the gap between these two extreme polar camps that have been battling it out since Louis Pasteur. Okay. Um, so let's get into it. Let's get into it. And I'd love to know your thoughts and I can't recommend this book enough to check out. Wilhelm Reich, The Cancer Bio Biopathy. This was his theory on cancer. So the main 
focus was him trying to talk about what he called bions, the mechanisms of disease, and the mechanisms of what causes cancer. And he was much more of a naturalist when it came to this. And some of his theories were considered radical, but um, I think a lot of assumptions were made about Reich in his day that everybody skipped over and none of the none of the guys that were studying this ever gave him his credit. And I'm glad I found a website where a high-level uh, high scientist is giving him his credit and saying, we've got to revisit the theories of Wilhelm Reich. And I was just grateful to see that. Whether Reich ends up being right about every single thing he ever theorized on or not is besides the point. It's that he was one of those censored mavericks that actually had his books burned in America uh, that you know you start to go, why? Why did they do that? And um, so another suppressed man that is very important to understand. And he came up with the idea of orgone. Um, some of the theories are a little radical for me, but I, his mind was there to speculate on it and, and try to bring something to it and then allow others to continue the research. So I, I think he's absolute genius on so many different things. And so I recommend if we're going to get into this idea of, um, he, he, he calls it bions and air germ theory. And he's talking air germ theory in relation to his theory on cancer. Okay as to how cancer spreads and everything else. And you can get that in this book on pages 67, sorry, 66, 67, 68, and 69. Okay. I'm just going to give you a little sampling of it to give you an idea of where he's, where he's at here. So he's saying, let us assume for a moment that it would be possible to find all known forms of microbes and the newly found bions in the air. Would in that case, the term air germs provide a scientific explanation for the origin of all of these forms? It would not, he said. One might rightly ask, true, these forms exist in the air, but whence and how did they get in the air? <laughs> what a great question, especially in our time where we have, you know, nano dust, smart dust, um, you know, genetically created bees that are out there, mosquitoes, uh, all kinds of chemicals in the food, air and water, on and on we could go. How did all of this stuff get into the air? Who put it there and why? If we give some thought to this question, we must admit scientific unintendability of the air germ theory. If our contention is valid that microorganisms developed from disintegrating inorganic and organic matter, then we have a valid answer to the question where the germs in the air originate. The air also can contain nothing but inorganic and dead organic matter. Also, nobody has yet seen the germ of an, ambia, an amoeba or of a paramechile. Mis <laughs> sorry, paramecium, can't read these terms. This fact is camouflaged by such absolute theological theses as every living thing comes of living matter or every cell comes from a cell. In the light of our findings and considerations, such theses cannot be taken seriously as scientific statements. They are rather effective defenses against facts to the contrary. So he's just laying his case out. He goes through all these various considerations. He explains it in detail, his thinking, and I highly recommend reading that whole those, those pages in the book to just get an idea of where his head was at as we get to the conclusion here. In the context of these con in considerations, he says, we may well touch upon a question which is apt to stir up all kinds of emotion. According to the air germ theory, the air is full of cholera and pest bacteria, which under normal hygienic conditions do not become manifest. Coming from the air, they lead to epidemics, which kill hundreds of thousands of people 
particularly in overpopulated countries with poor hygiene or during wartime. Should it be possible, we must ask, that in these epidemics, the biological condition of the people under the influence of poor hygiene and the horrors of war plays no role at all? So he's not even going all the way to say that an internal mechanism of disease is the only part of this discussion. He's just trying to say, why is it even part of the discussion at all? <laughs> so he was the first advocate for the terrain concept where he's like, we got to look at the terrain and the fact that there's a relationship between anything external, which at that time and probably still now is very theoretical in many ways. But again, not to deny that it's a factor, not to deny that it exists. And this was written in the late, like how, when was it written? 1940s or whatever? 30s? I got to look the dates. Bring in the hypersonic speed of the science of biological warfare in our time. And now we can actually look at this as, again, another relationship of it not being one or the other. I'm not, this isn't, I'm not even saying this, is what Reich is saying here, really. I'm just saying, I'm adding this in, but that there's a relationship between the internal and the external when it comes to the mechanisms of disease. And he is standing up going, in the science of our time, we're just thinking everything's coming from outside of us and nothing to do with your condition, nothing to do with the fact that most of these big disease outbreaks that they like to champion vaccines for and everything, uh, they don't want to bring in the poverty level, the sanitary conditions, the fact that most people were going through war, which is just imagine the horrors of war, um, and that they're not even factoring that in to the spread of disease, right? Let alone how it eventually really became eradicated. So, so he's saying, should it be, should it be possible that a back bacillus, which I think he's talking about bacteria alone is responsible and not also the living organism, which it devastates. So he's saying there, if we have these bacteria out in the world, some of them artificial, some of them natural, are we to believe that the condition of the living organism that now becomes infected with this bacteria has no relationship to why it's being devastated? Like, Obviously it does. Obviously. So he's saying, so, so this is his major gripe here. Why is the bacteria given so much consideration and the human organism so little? I fear that it takes less to fight the air germ than to fight the biopath biopathies. There can be no doubt that the biopathic condition, biopathic meaning the mechanisms of your body, right? The, the lack of bioenergy, the, you know, there's so many conditions. Remember, he had a theory of psychology where he said, your ego is not in your brain. Your ego is the body. That's the ego. Mic drop. See you later, right? Like, there you go. It's not just something in your head. The ego is the body because it's the surface. And so you got all these people with body issues and self-hatred. And so that's why they abuse their bodies. Does that have anything to do with the disease flying around in the world? That's all he's asking. So there can be no doubt that the biopathic condition of the victims of cholera or pest, uh, etc., de deserves far more attention than the bacteria itself, the origin of which, incidentally, is entirely obscure. So he says, to summarize, the air germ theory is not only experimentally shown to be erroneous, it is not only incapable of explaining central phenomena of biology and pathology, 
More than that, it obfuscates a true comprehension of disease mechanisms. It is a dogma, which like all dogmata, saves one thinking and searching. So he's like, they just settled in this one seasoned way of looking at it. They may even be right to a certain extent, but now they're obscuring the full truth of how disease actually functions. And um, I'll tell you why I think that is because when he started writing this book, guys, guess who was becoming the most powerful agency on the face of the earth at that time? The Rockefeller Foundation. And we'll get to that, okay? So he says, as we have seen, the Bion theory and the findings on which it is based makes a material contribution to the clarification of those problems which are not accessible by way of the air germ theory. So he's showing the deficiencies here. We shall now turn to a certain Bion culture in which the physical discovery of the orgone energy succeeded. So a lot of this book is actually his methods of experiment. Like it's a scientific book. It's not just his speculations. It's I went and I boiled this in the pot for two hours and then I did this over here in the, in the whatever. And he goes to the actual way that he conducts his research. Okay. So I actually found a website called the journal of psychiatric orgone therapy. And it's an article written by James Strick and it's called Wilhelm Reich's Bion Experiments, an unusual origin of life research program. I can't, it's a, such a long paper that he writes. I'm going to link everything over here, guys, my slides, my links over on my telegram immediately after, as I always do. So check it out. But if you have time and you're really curious about this ongoing discussion and this debate going on, um, read this. And if you want a history of Wilhelm Reich, read the whole thing. Okay. But here's a little bit that I found interesting. So he's talking, we're at the conclusion section here. So changes in biology and medicine in the 1930s. So 1930s, there you go. First, let me say that based on my work so far, including examining most of Reich's laboratory notebooks and time-lapse films for 1935 to 1939, it seems clear that Reich's bion experiments were serious, careful science, fully up to the standards of sterility of the pyramid, of the period. Based on all the evidence to date, I conclude that Reich's experiments did not get a fair scientific hearing. Most of his opponents overlooked or talked past Reich's most important replies to their criticisms or were unaware to begin with that they were missing crucial details of his technique. No researcher besides Dutail ever came close to adequately replicating even a single experiment during the 1930s debate. And because of their large implications for biology, these experiments deserve a serious scientific reevaluation. So there was an issue where nobody could reproduce a lot of Reich's experiments. And what he's saying is that this isn't due to a lack of them being proven or being efficacious studies, but that it was actually none of these people were even on the same wavelength of understanding of what he was trying to do. So they couldn't reproduce it or maybe they were told to not. There's that angle because implications, as he's saying, the implications for our understanding of human biology, the mechanisms of disease would change forever if we even took a piece of what Reich was talking about. And I look back now and, I, and some people that would go and crap all over the man, I would say, well, we followed the Anthony Fauci playbook for how long and that kind of scientist and that kind of thinking, which was actually born from the Rockefeller Foundation and born in Nazi Germany uh, and the Soviet Union. It was born in these places from these Royal Society characters. Um, we followed those guys and look where we're at. 
And people go, oh, we've eradicated so much disease. Yeah, we've also created a lot of disease. Look how much heart disease is going on pre-jabby jabbies. Uh, look at the cancer rates. Look at AIDS. Look at all these things going on, right? So time for some serious reevaluation. Now, I don't think I'm going to read this whole thing. I just got a piece of it here. One of my most important interpretive offerings has to do with the Rockefeller Foundation. So here he is saying it right in the journal. The director of the Rockefeller Foundation's natural sciences program was a physicist, Warren Weaver, who had an outspoken agenda for decisions about what research would get funding. His goal was to import the tools of physics and chemistry, the ultra centrifuge, electron microscope, uh, X-ray, etc., into the life sciences and thus to make them more reductionist and more mechanistic. And guys, I think this is where they went wrong. Only thereby did he think progress could be made on the central problems of the life sciences, which he believed would all yield to explanations based on the structure of critical macromolecules like proteins and nucleic acids. Now, because the Rockefeller Foundation money was the only game in town during the Depression years, so just a quick history, the big bankers, the banksters, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, etc., basically uh, plundered the the, that whole empire during the depression years, which a lot of people think was caused on purpose to create that condition so that they could buy up businesses at pennies on the dollar. They could, uh, centralize their money-making ability, their power. This was the era where they were able to start the process of centralizing their control over the resources, the land and the wealth. Okay. That's how it started was during the depressions there. Okay. So it's funny, they're having this discussion how the, when it comes to medicine and what gets financed, what gets researched, what gets publicity in the paid bought for media, it is based on the fact that the Rockefeller Foundation was the only game in town. So you had to pass by them. And if you didn't, you didn't get remembered in history and your science never got funding and your experiments, many of which Reich had to pay for himself and went penniless trying to do, he didn't get funding to continue his research. Because obviously, if his research was funded, we wouldn't need pharma at all, I think. And that's what they were worried about. So the influence of Weaver's agenda was greatly magnified. Reich's emphasis on an energy principle, his insistence on giving priority to studying tissues in the living states, not in the dead state, because that's what they do. And his belief in the older doctrine of colloids as important rather than macromolecules were in sharp distinction with this agenda. So basically everything he came up with was probably a solution for disease, but it conflicted with the agenda of the Rockefeller Foundation. That's essentially the history of what happened to Wilhelm Reich, okay? Thus, it is not surprising yeah, that Reich's ideas might find themselves outside of the old boys network of peer reviewers for RF Rockefeller Foundation grants. So, and just quickly, he says, Reich's research agenda, as described, pursues a fairly clear straight line of logical development from the initial inquiry into the function of the orgasm and the physical nature of the energy behind psychic drives. Vitalism, by contrast, was in many ways becoming completely discredited in the late 1930s. Its association with Nazi ideas further guaranteed its absolute loss of any scientific respectability by the 1940s. So again, it's obviously not a Nazi ideology. It's just that it was also looked at by the Nazi scientists. So therefore anybody looking at it was branded a Nazi. Um, and off you go. That's how they do it. 
So research programs like Reich's attempting to create a middle way between vitalism and mechanism. So see, this is why I like Reich, guys. He wasn't just a proponent of one over the other. He was trying to build a bridge. He was trying to say, we see your scientific evidence of one aspect, but it's missing the other aspect, which means everything you're going to build on this premise is going to cause more disease, not less. If we bring it all together and compare notes and keep getting this research funded, we could solve disease. That's all Reich was advocating for. And they went, you're crazy quack. Out of you go. We're not going to fund your research. So the final result of all of this, a research program that could have seemed like a respectable one if minority view in the 1930s would look almost hopelessly old-fashioned and out of date by only a decade later in the new world of molecular biology. So they basically missed it. They missed the boat on what Wilhelm Reich was looking into and imagine where that research could have gone if it was continued. And so there are little organizations still trying to continue it. But in the end, guys, it's really simple. There's a mind-body connection. He referred to that as somatic intelligence because the soma is the energy field. The orgone is the... Uh, it's the energy field that it's like the electromagnetic charge that your body produces in a similar way that a thunderstorm is produced or all of creation is produced or energy is produced of any kind. And that's why his research didn't just stay in the world of biology and medicine. It also went into free energy type of technology. Cause when you tap into that and you realize there's a connection, it's not all separate compartments of this mechanistic world, but there's, energy behind it. There's spirit behind it. There's something behind it. Um, and so he was just trying to put new words to it. Orgone, Soma. Let's look at the bodies. Let's look at the body and what the body's doing instead of just invading forces. Right? So again, middle ground, that's the kind of person that I like where he's trying to actually show you there's a relationship between the internal world and the external world. Okay. So go read the whole article, really brilliant history on it. And then I think this is where I add my two cents. So after reviewing it, and I do have some other great websites that break down the big debate between viruses and no viruses and terrain versus germ and all that. You can go read it on your own. But here's just a theory. It's literally just a theory. I am not an expert on this at all. But as I was looking through all of this, and as I've been making this series, and as I've experienced sickness in my life, and I, my, my mother went through it her whole life, as I'm watching what went down in the last few years, as I researched uh, so many of these different subjects, certain pieces started to fall into place, and I just started to think about it, okay? So just a theory. The theory is that the agenda of this cult is the turning off of the inner light, the inner orgone, the inner photonic production center of the human body. Because if they can turn that off, what does that make you? You are now the children of darkness instead of the children of light, right? Literally, you, you turn the light off inside, you slam the door and lock it shut of the kingdom of heaven within, now you are open season. You're lost at sea and you now need this cult. You need this cult to survive. So real simple, turn the lights off. So you got the light in the body. The light in the body is your melatonin, is your immune system, is your red blood, red and white blood cells. Um, 
your chi, all the science, there's scientific terms to describe it. There's mystical terms to describe it. I think we're all talking about the same thing. You got the pineal gland, which regulates the whole thing. It's the conductor of the orchestra when it comes to regulating your sleep cycles, regulating your immune system, regulating your melatonin production, which melatonin production in the body is known as light in the body. So you assault the mind, you assault the psyche, you shut it off, and then the physical health decays. I think that's it. So to put it simply, and I got this, um, this was actually some notes that I was taking from my buddy, Josh Reed. He was breaking this down. He interviewed some very interesting uh, researchers on the ACE2 receptors in the body. And this is just a way of trying to explain it to kind of bridge the gap here. So to put it simply, it's the ACE2 receptors, which allow for the potassium sodium gating, which equal the electrical signal, which occurs in the cell to open up the cell walls and let things into the cell. So there's like a gatekeeper of the cells and that potassium sodium gating is the actual electrical signal, which allows the cell to open up and the cell walls open. And once the cell walls open, things can get in there whether they're produced in your body, whether they're foreign agents through contagion, whether it's a mix of the two, whether it's electromagnetic frequency, it doesn't matter. They're, this is just describing the process of how your cell, like, you know, when you're sick, right? Before you're actually feeling symptoms, you're still sick. You still have, your body's still doing processing something, right? And when you're at the symptom stage, that's actually at the healing stage. That's when the body's kind of fighting off the rest of it. And you're, it's also when whatever it is has sort of settled into the cell. That's why the, the symptoms can be so severe. The fever, your body's trying to fight it off and burn it out. The body aches, you're feeling the attack, but it's also you're feeling your body fighting back. So the symptoms aren't just the disease. In fact, they're not the disease. The symptoms are your body's response to the disease. Okay. But this is just the scientific process of how this works. So this process is the only way a virus or bacterial agent can be contagious to another person. They figured out a long time ago how to hack this process. So putting aside our old school theories about how all these things work, how disease transfers from human to human, there's merit to a lot of it, right? But bring in the mechanism of how to manipulate the natural system, both externally by manipulating the external environment and the internal environment by manipulating the mind. If you know how to manipulate those spheres of being, you can spread diseases. All right. So they figured out how to hack the process. Humans are now genetically modified organisms. And according to Yoel Harari, the way they see us is that we are now hackable animals. So they didn't just figure out how to hack us by putting a bunch of nanobots in our bodies. They know how to hack your mind and your, your disease process. Think about it like that. And of course they want to genetically modify you so that you can be owned and patented your cells, your DNA. It's theirs because they put their stuff into you. And now you are a product of theirs. You're no longer, you can't patent things from nature. I got to, I'll play a clip at the end. If you, if I remember by G. Edward Griffin, he breaks this all down. So what I'm saying here is all older theories from times before the advent of this modern bio warfare now need to be reassessed with this in mind. It needs a 
All of it needs a full reappraisal now when we bring this mechanism in. So I think people have become turned off by the term virus, and probably rightly so, and maybe don't fully understand what it even is. Even plants have viruses, right? I think we're also looking at these words, and I'm not meaning what the germ theorists are saying when they say virus when I use the word virus, okay? That's not what I'm meaning. We live in a prison of words. So all life forms have these things we call viruses. What they are, how they contribute to disease, that's where the debate is, right? But I just think it needs to be all reappraised with the understanding of biochemical warfare, biological warfare, bacterial warfare that people like, um, you know, one of the top guys in the Royal Society, uh, Bertrand Russell was talking about as being an effective way to control the population. So they put, from the early 1800s, they were putting time in to figuring out how to manipulate this process. Do you think they didn't figure a thing out or two? So it's a very, a very natural function in nature is this viral bacterial process, right? But if you know how to manipulate it, you can cause man-made unnatural things to happen, which is what these people do. All they have done is weaponize this process in the body. So we're putting aside the natural process of the human body left untouched, left uninfluenced, without a, all this stuff going on, this biowarfare going on. That's a different debate than the current discussion of what's happening with this gain-of-function research and the level that these apothecaries have achieved of how to manufacture and create disease amongst human beings. So... To call it a virus could still be considered accurate, but again, now we have a word that every time you use it, you have to explain it for half an hour. So maybe we got to find a different word. So that's why I just use disease or whatever. It is interesting that the term virus actually comes out of the Sanskrit from the root word, the same root word as venom and poison. So plants use poisons and venoms. Reptiles, animals... Poisons and venoms. Humans have poisons and venoms. In, there's, it's an element of nature. And there's a proper mechanism when everything's in its natural order. But if you can manipulate that, you can make a lot of black magic happen, let me tell you. So let's put it this way then. What if they have figured out? This sounds radical, but let's just go with it. This was a theory that a few doctors started to speculate on. What if... These apothecaries and medics have figured out how to make poison contagious amongst the human population. Prefer the word poison? There we go. Because it's something that's being done on purpose to change your biochemical structure. Right? They're going to hack you and turn you into something else. And I think disease is a byproduct of that process. So there you go. Uh, sit with that, let you think about it. I just want to get into a little bit of an older text here. It's called The Anatomy of Melancholy, and I thought this was interesting. This comes from a gentleman named Robert Burton in 1621. <laughs> 1621. And he's commenting here on the medical cult, okay? I found this interesting. I couldn't put this in text in the film, so we're going to read it here. It's hard because he's using 1621 English, so bear with me here. Okay, we'll try to translate as best we can for you. The country people, he's like, the people living in the rural centers, the country folk, use kitchen physic 
And common experience tells us that they live freest from all manner of infirmities that make least of our apothecary's physic. Okay, let's translate these terms. What's this physic? Okay, country folks are using kitchen physic. What do you think he means? It's nana's, nona's soup, uh, you know, ginger, uh, you know, parsley, uh, spinach, uh, avocado. I don't, I don't know if they had avocados in England in 1621. Um, all, the, all the things that we use, uh, taking plants and and doing real apothecary work in your kitchen. So he's basically saying the knowledge of just proper diet and the old wives' methods of healing, you know, that he's saying at this time, common experience tells us that those who use the kitchen physic over the apothecary physic, that's what the, that then they called them apothecaries, the medics, right? They live the freest of all kinds of infirmities and disease. So he's basically telling you what a lot of naturopaths are telling you now, which is that stay away from them doctors if you can help it and use kitchen medicine. Use the stuff growing in your backyard. Use organic food. Use There's so many natural things that you can do to keep your body, to keep the body, the ego healthy, Right? And that's what raises what we call the immune system, which is the, the, the forces in your body and the biochemicals in the body that fight off and actually neutralize these mechanisms of disease. If you enhance your body with natural features, it'll take care of itself. You don't have to go to the apothecary. So he's back to this old 1961 way of saying, stay away from the doctor. It's about health as an inside job. It's about what you're putting in your food. Okay, start there. Continuing, many are overthrown by preposterous use of it. He's talking about the apothecary's physic. So they overuse the apothecary physic. And thereby get their bane, which is another word for like uh, infirmity or evil or, or something bad. And that might otherwise have escaped. Some think physicians kill as many as they save. Can you believe they're having this conversation as far back as 1621? And yet we're sitting there going, guys, I think the cult of the medics and big pharma is killing more people than they're saving. I think this jibby jab is killing more people than it's saving. I think all the protocols that came down from the top cults of the world, the big world health organization, I think it's hurting more people than it's saving. I think locking healthy people into their homes for three years, producing suicide rates, that we've never seen before is hurting more people than they're saving. They started talking about this in 1621, dealing with the same kind of people that were thinking in the same way. How incredible is that? How many murders they make in a year, he says, that they may freely kill folks and have a reward for it. And according to the Dutch proverb, a new physician must have a new churchyard and who daily observes it not. He's already comparing it to the medical call. He's saying it's a religion. Wow. Many that did ill under physicians' hands have happily escaped when they have been given over by them, left to God and nature and themselves. T'was Pliny's dilemma of old that every disease is either curable or incurable. A man recovers of it or is killed by it. Both ways physic is to be rejected. 
If it be deadly, it cannot be cured. If it may be helped, it requires no physician, because nature will expel it of itself. Plato made it a great sign of an intemperate and corrupt commonwealth where lawyers and physicians did abound, and the Romans distasted them so much that they were often banished out of their city, as Pliny and Sellus relate, for 600 years not admitted. It is no art at all, as some hold, not worthy of the name of a liberal science, nor a law either. And as, a as Canon Harris, a patrician of Rome, and a great doctor himself, one of their own tribe, proves by 16 arguments, because it is mercenary as now used, base, and as fiddlers play for a reward. Here's some Latin for you. Tis a corrupt trade, no science, art, no profession, the beginning, practice, and progress of it, all is not full of imposture, uncertainty, and doth generally more harm than good. So the, even the Romans are writing, a Roman physician is basically saying, these guys are interfering with the forces of nature and causing more harm than good. As far back as the Roman Empire, guys, okay? So he continues here, the devil himself was the first inventor of it. Apollo, and what was Apollo but the devil? The Greeks first made an art of it, and they were all deluded by Apollo's sons, priests, and oracles. He's talking about the cult of uh, Asclepius. If we may believe Varro, Pliny, Columella, most of their best medicines were derived from his oracles. Asclepius, his son, had his temples erected to his deity and did many famous cures. But as, Las but as Lastanius holds, he was a magician, a mere imposter. And his many successors, Phaon, Podalerius, a bunch of other names, uh, by charm, spells, and a ministry of bad spirits, performed most of their cures. <laughs> he's getting to the point where he's like, these guys are like casting spells and shit. This isn't just, oh, we're trying to figure stuff out. Now, of course, people could just say, oh, this Burton guy is just a, you know, extremist, but... I just find it interesting we're finding people in the 1600s reflecting back to other references about a cult of medics that had a particular worldview and belief, and they left a trail of bodies and tears in their path. They may have cured some things. They may have done a little good over here because, again, the human mind will never accept pure evil. Uh, so you have to, you got to save some people if you, you know. And it could have been a sort of madness that these guys got uh, brought into. And then we can also stretch it a little further, and we're going to do this in the last three chapters of Cult of the Medics, as to the fact that we know in many of these cults coming out of Rome, Babylon, Greece, um, and even the Vatican, uh, and definitely leading up to now the Royal Society, which they bragged they were the last of the sorcerers, but I just think they changed branding. They didn't. They didn't really end that belief system. They just changed the names. Um, that maybe they were working in this other field of the occult, of conjuring these spirits and interfacing with something that was totally, we're still trying to understand. And that a lot of the counsel they were getting came from otherworldly influences. That's another just out of the box, just for fun speculation. But Either way, um, I find it interesting. We have a guy basically saying, you know what? The old folks in the country, they're healthy. They don't have all these infirmities. It's those guys in the cities. It's those guys that are going to listen to this 
these doctors, these apothecaries who are manipulating nature to such a degree that they're screwing it up. And it comes from hubris and arrogance. And uh, they were part of these ancient lineages back to Greece and Rome. And they were deluded by these priestcrafts. So again, there's your little hints that we can find about a, a cult of the medics going into antiquity. Now, let's switch back to a, or let's go over to a quote that I featured, and I didn't get to feature the whole quote, the whole quote I wanted to in this, but this was near the end where I'm bringing in Nikola Tesla about what the body is, and I just love this. So again, another great genius who also was a mystic as well as a scientist, he said this, everyone should consider the body as a priceless gift, a marvelous work of art of indescribable beauty and a mystery beyond human conception. And so delicate that a word, a breath, a look, nay, a thought may injure it. Just this alone. Read this to your kids. Get this in their heads from day one. Your body is not a curse. It's not a cage. It's not a prison. It's not to be defiled and rejected. It's not to be uh, also abused. It's to be considered a gift, a work of art, something of indescribable beauty when you understand how it actually works, when you understand that your body is its own universe that's interfacing with the greater universe on a fractal that we can't even yet imagine. And that it was given to you as a gift by your creator or by whatever force brought you into being. And that thinking alone, just a negative thought about it, fear itself, which is also something we address in this chapter, fear itself could injure it. Guys, read that quote and then read anything from any of your top health advisors or the media headlines or what they did to us to create a totally different perspective on it and look at the results of this mass human experiment so far. If we would have listened to a Wilhelm Reich or a Nikola Tesla, just those two men alone, and we took their advice during this whole whatever the hell this was, even if it was made in a lab somewhere, we would have got through it inside of weeks, not years. And we would actually be past most of the diseases that plague humanity. We don't need the cult of the medics. We need this wisdom and knowledge and love, the love of what you are, the acceptance of what you are, not an evasion of reality, because that is the number one conspiracy of all time, and I'll be doing more on that as we go. The evasion of reality. What we're going through with all of these scams being exposed is we're finding out that the underlying belief system of the cults that run the world, the most powerful of all of them, they're at war with reality. They're at war with nature. They're at war with what we call God with the universal force itself. These are the fallen ones. They're fallen from the grace of the knowledge of what Tesla is breaking down right here. And that self-loathing, that lack of self-hatred, that inner fear has become a demonic entity that has possessed these people. And they have made that contagious by way of their media. And that's the real pandemic. 
So he says this at the end, our condition of body and mind in old age is merely a certificate of how we have spent our youth. The secret of my own strength and vitality today is that in my youth, I led what you might call a virtuous life. So again, virtue, what are the virtues? Why would, why would a Tesla, why would Tesla, who became a great genius, one of the forgotten ones, he's coming back a bit, but for the longest time, nobody could even pronounce his name, let alone know who he was. He's a great genius. The man slept like two, three hours a night, according to his own journals. Yet he's animated with a spirit and a genius that created alternating current and so many other things and had so much insight and he discovered so many brilliant things about our reality and about energy and about consciousness and about our universe and our planet and everything else that they had to suppress the man and bring all of his research into black budget military DARPA programs to weaponize it instead of leaving it as the gift that someone like him wanted to leave humanity to get us out of these conditions. And you start to wonder about the man himself. What creates a genius like Tesla? Why don't we have more of that? Well, because the vast majority of people aren't living a virtuous life and aren't looking at it the way he's looking at it. It's worldview. Maybe Tesla wasn't the highest IQ in the world. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that. He created himself as a genius. Just like Walter Russell, another genius, had said, mediocrity is self-inflicted. Genius is self-bestowed as a gift. And it comes with a worldview of walking light on your feet, being in the world but not of the world. Those are the geniuses. They have the ability to objectively look at things and go, all right, I see the flaws. Let me find a solution. These are the people that are solution-oriented. They don't get stuck in the drama. They don't get stuck in the low-level melancholy in the depressed state of mind. They don't, they are active minds that are creating 24 seven to the point where their spirit is so supercharged. That orgone is so supercharged. They don't even need to sleep for crying out loud. And so he says, it's very simple. I lived a life of virtue, but it wasn't a virtue. You couldn't become a genius like this. You couldn't achieve that health of the body. Because remember, he's only sleeping a couple hours a night. We're told, oh, that'll kill you. And for most people, it would. But here he is living to a very old age. A lot of people think he could have lived longer and they may have even murdered the man. I don't know. But he lived a virtuous life because of the first statement. Consider your body. And also your mind, every part of you, your body, your mind, your spirit, consider that all as a gift, a marvelous work of art, indescribable beauty, a mystery bond human conception. So delicate that a word, a breath, a look may injure it. And a person that has self-knowledge, self-love, understands and is commuting with the divine spirit would never want to injure themselves, would never have that issue that so many people have through conditioning, through past trauma, through whatever it is, through fear to actually hate themselves and, and believe the lie that you're told by these globalist psychopaths that humans are like a virus on the earth and they need to be controlled. And, blah, blah. and they adopt that worldview. Instead of adopting the worldview of the heroes and the geniuses and the sages and the warriors and the real magicians, 
And you know he's got to be onto something because he created marvels that they're still trying to figure out. They're still scratching their heads over what Tesla came up with. So he was a gift from, he was a gift from God to this world, as were many. And he told you the secret. It wasn't about going to get how many jabs did you get? Are you healthy now? It wasn't that. It was, I learned how to love my body. I learned how to respect it as a gift that was given to me. I learned how to see the world as a mystery. I learned how to open myself and be creative and do something with this vital energy that I've been given. Do something with this gift of intelligence and reason and intuition that I've been given. Do something with it. If you sit back, you're like that pond that just goes stale. You just, you start, just, there's nothing going. And they want you there. They, they don't want a world of Nikola Teslas. All of us could be that. All of us could think on that level and create marvels in the world and change the world. But they don't want that. You think the JP Morgans of the world want that? You think Rockefeller Foundation wants that? You think Klaus Schwab wants that? He wants to turn you into a computer. He wants to turn you into an iPhone. Like, that's it. That's what he wants. That's what they're advocating for. When Tesla was creating technology, he wasn't creating technology to turn you into robot slaves. He was creating technology that was interfacing with spirit. What he called spirit, what he called the, he had names for it. He was trying to build a bridge and actually make technology that would actually serve humanity and help enlighten humanity and bring us energy so we could get out of the survival mindset and evolve. Those aren't the scientists running at the world anymore. This is why I'll always defend science as a principle and show you the real scientists. These are the real scientists. And then talk about the big royal societies and the Smithsonian's and show you where they're coming from with their worldview that they got not out of the advent of science and the industrial revolution. Those royal society characters, your Bertrand Russell, all these guys, they are students of the occult world. They were sorcerers before they renamed themselves scientists. Not all, but key figures in history that ended up controlling the institutions that we call the colleges. And that brings us to the colleges. What do I got on the colleges? How are we doing? We're already two hours over? Okay. We're, we're doing okay. Um, there's a section in, in the chapter with Dr. Charles Hoff. And shout out to Dr. Charles Hoff. What a great guy. I did an interview with him and I clipped a bit out of there. I, I love this clip as well. I have a lot of favorite clips of how they turned out in this one. But it's the pandemic of fear. The pandemic of fear. And that was really the theme, right? Was the real pandemic was a pandemic of fear. And Charles Hoff is unique. He's a doctor from British Columbia where I live. 20-year veteran emergency room physician doctor. And he came out right away and started talking about what's going on. And he was the one in that at, at that caliber that came out and started talking about the colleges, the control that the colleges of physicians and surgeons have. Um, so we go into the colleges of physicians and surgeons and we look at, say, the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons, the British Columbia one, the, the Texas one. There's a college of physicians and surgeons everywhere. Where do they answer to? Where's their, where do their 
Where does the peer review come from? Where does the degrees come from? Where do you get knighted into the, you're literally knighted into the College of Physicians and Surgeons, okay? There's like a whole ritual with the black robes and the scepters and the whole thing. Tried to just give you some hints of that when you graduate. People have no idea the world of occult magical symbolism that all those rituals come from. And no, they weren't all evil either. It's just that you know that it comes from the ancient world and it's still being used by the new scientists who are trying to say that all that stuff in the ancient world's all a bunch of hogwash, yet they're all still performing these magical rituals. If you remember, I got to say this real quick, and I said this in a recent interview. When we're dealing with the knowledge and the symbolism and the rituals that come from the esoteric, occult, secret society world, Masonic world, any of those whatevers, you have to remember that it's all, you could all call it magic and science together. It's alchemy. It birthed from alchemy, okay? And none of it of itself is either good or evil. There's nothing good or evil about the knowledge and the rituals and the symbolisms and the colors and the whole, there's nothing, it is itself is amoral. It's just a thing. It's just an expression. It's a knowledge base. The difference between a white magician and a black magician is how that knowledge is being used and to what end. Does that make sense? This is where we get into problems where you're trying to show people the world of symbolism. You're trying to teach them about, okay, the Masonic Lodges got infiltrated by a dark cult and here we are and now it's not even a shard of what it used to be and, and the church is in the same, all the religions, the institutions, asymmetric warfare has been going on for a long time, clearly, right? And it's all about power. People want power. Well, the dark magician clan thinks of power as material, material power, how to gain more material power. If you want to sum up Satanism and what they're trying to do with all those rituals and the stuff they do to kids and the underground networks and all that stuff, what they're, tr they're trying to achieve something. They're not just crazy. They're trying to achieve power. And they just believe in this ancient stuff that that's the way to achieve power through mechanistic ritual processes. That's black magic. Manipulating nature to bend to your will, even though you're wiping out lots of people in the process or you're, you're committing evil, you're distorting nature, you're manipulating nature to the point where now you're a black magician, whereas the white magician works in harmony with nature, is trying to help promote nature the way a gardener promotes nature. If you're a gardener, you might trim a few leaves. You might move a few plants around. You might change the soil composition and the pH and all that. You're not a black magician. If your goal is to allow the conditions for those plants to grow and thrive. And you're the, you're the caretaker. That's the gift humans have been given. If you don't have a purpose to life, that's your purpose to life. You're to take and work with the, the, aspects of nature, both inner and outer, and you are to create something with it and tend it like a garden and care for it. And it's sorge, care, empathy, creation, right? That's what you are. That's the light when used properly. But the light, the Black Lodge figured out the light can also be used to blind people and obscure truth. So we'll take all this ancient knowledge that we pillaged out of the Library of Alexandria that was left to us from the Atlanteans and the Egyptians and all these people, um, and we will just 
reappropriate and we'll just remix it a little bit and tweak it and we'll birth a new field of magic. And there are many indications that much of what was created out of that knowledge was used as a weapon to achieve power by small groups of people. There were other groups that used that knowledge to counter that black magic and to do good in the world and to be the caretakers and to be the guardians. So this is why I think when we talk about white hats and black hats, this isn't a modern thing. This war has been going on underground between these elite orders of good and evil for centuries. And it, it, the war is over the, the, the knowledge itself. It's over the symbols. It's over all of that. And the reason symbols are so important and ritual is so important is because that is how you entrain the people. That's how you reach the people. Because remember they said, you have to influence the masses if you want to get something done. So the good guys, to keep it simple, are trying to use this ancient knowledge tradition and all this ancient stuff that's been hidden from most of humanity and held by these lodges underground at the top. And some use that knowledge base for evil, to acquire power illegitimately, to cheat, to cheat the rules of nature, and to manipulate nature to such a degree that they are causing more harm than good. They are destroying in the process. To me, that's your black magician. The white magicians could be people like you and I, could be people at an elite level, doesn't matter are using that same base of knowledge, which is really just a knowledge of nature and the universe and human consciousness. That's all it is. That's all all that occult weird stuff is. From The, reli the religions are all just pieces of that central knowledge. They're just pieces of it, in my opinion. All of it is. But it used to be known as a central base of knowledge of what nature is and what humanity is and what our origins are and how to build civilization and, and all that kind of stuff, right? How to, how to be the gardeners of humanity as opposed to the slave masters, which would be the black magicians. Okay, so that's my little rant on it. Let's get into a few definitions from people who've studied it and were probably involved in it in many ways. This is from Manly P. Hall, Magic, a Treatise on Esoteric Ethics. So he was one that wrote about all this stuff. Yes, he was a Freemason, but he was, a, in my opinion, a whistleblower that came out to talk about the Black Lodge and how it got taken over. And then to explain that this knowledge base is of itself not good or evil. It's the hand that wields it, right? So he said this. This is him defining what a black magician is. The black magician cannot use the symbols of white magic without bringing down upon himself the forces of white magic, which would be fatal to his schemes. That first sentence is a really good way to open the door to understanding why they can't just flat out lie to you 100%. They can't there's certain laws they have to follow. Why they can't just, if they want to depopulate, why they couldn't just release the worst thing ever and just force everybody in, in concentration. They've tried that and uh, in the past and it never works because they believe in these karmic universal principles, right? So they're under that, that, that surveillance in the way they look at it. So if a black magic uses the symbols of white magic without he can't do that without bringing down upon himself the forces of that white magic, which is just ways that we're working with the forces of momentum, okay? It'd be fatal to his schemes if he did. 
So the Black Lodge is beholden to certain laws that go well above them. So they like to think that they're the be-all and end-all and the controllers of nature and all that, but they're not, and they know it, and they just like to play pretend, okay? He must therefore distort the hierograms so that they typify the occult fact that he himself is distorting the principles for which the symbols stand. So they take symbols, this Black Lodge, and they manipulate it so that it's just off center from its original meaning. Because it can't be too far off, or otherwise everybody's going to be onto it. And also, there's a backlash that comes back karmically, right? So he, he's, he's got to distort it in a way where it's undetectable. Because if it's too detectable, it backfires. The spell won't work. So they distort the principles. They didn't invent the principles. They didn't invent this knowledge. All this knowledge contained in all the Masonic lodges, all the stuff buried under the Vatican, all the stuff in the bellies of your religious temples that your priests probably know, but they'll never tell you. All that knowledge is your birthright. It's yours. But they only tweak it a little bit and then sell it back to you for the purposes of mass control just like Jim Keith was talking about, okay? Black magic is not a fundamental art. It is the misuse of an art. So they're not original. None of them are. Psychopaths and sociopaths can't create shit. They don't have any creative ability physically, psychologically. They don't possess that ability. So they can't create anything. So everything you see them using from pentagrams to freaking whatever. Pick your symbol. Pick your, your writer ritual. They didn't invent it. They stole it and repackaged it. And they did it because they knew it would work. It's powerful. For some reason, these symbols are really powerful to our subconscious mind. You go read some Carl Jung on his man and his symbols to understand how archetypes work, which are just aspects of you which are aspects of nature, which are aspects of the divine, right? You put it all together, you understand how this works. So it's a misuse of an art. It's not an art of its own. Even the way these guys are building the totalitarian technocracy, they're taking something they didn't invent and tweaking it towards their will and selling it back to you. So the thing itself, the technology itself, isn't good or bad. It's amoral. It's the hand that wields it. So therefore, it has no symbols of its own. They don't have their own symbols, guys. It merely takes the emblematic figures of white magic and by inverting them and reversing them, because inversion is their modus operandi, they invert things. By inverting and reversing them, it signifies that it is left-handed. <laughs> you got a radical left wing running around, you wonder why? In symbolism, an inverted figure always signifies a perverted power. Black magic appeals to the mass mind. It appeals to the principles of our civilization. It offers something for nothing. As long as there is cupidity in the human heart, it will remain as a menace to the honesty and integrity of our race. So again, hinting that there's a relationship between the average Joe that has no idea about an occult magical war going on and the actual occult magicians. There's a relationship, whether they know it or not. And if we can realize it, we can bring back honesty, integrity, truth, freedom, and justice back to our, to our world. 
The black magic of the Middle Ages with its witchcraft and orgies is not dead. Let me repeat that. When you're learning about all the missing Epstein-Maxwell files and all that stuff, and we're having that information slowly leak out bit by bit, let me just repeat this. The black magic of the Middle Ages and earlier with its witchcraft and orgies is not dead. Only its form has changed like all other forms in nature. Just like the sorcerers. Oh, it's the end of the sorcerers and the beginning of the scientists. Is it now? Really? <laughs> I wish it was the beginning of the scientists. Um, it is incarnated again in our age with all its power and fury. It is gnawing as in the days of old, gnawing at the very heart of our civilization. As the black magician has no legitimate means of securing his power, they can't secure by legitimate, honest, moral means, guys. They are cheaters. They're cheaters. As the black magician has no legitimate means of securing his power, not having passed through the school of reclamation, he wanders the earth vampiring humanity in order to secure the vitality which he must have in order to continue his operations. Wow. There's the mic drop. There it is. He wanders the evil ones. This is who they are. They're wandering the earth vampiring humanity, vampiring your light, literally, not metaphorically, not metaphor, not theologically, literally. If you watch my children of light presentation on truth warrior premium. Okay. Um, I get into this, this theory, explaining it from the other side. Okay. We're kind of looking at the children of darkness right now, the children of light. We talk about light. We look at the Bible, for example, and we reinterpret as it's been reinterpreted so many times. Anyways, let's just add another one on the pile and see if it pans out. If we interpret what's said, we can actually understand this from a different perspective as to what everybody's talking about spiritual war going on and all this stuff. There's a slight setting change to understand it if you bring this world in and you go, all right, these people of themselves don't have the vitality of their own, on their own. The most powerful Illuminati families or whatever you want to call them in the world don't have the ability to create. They don't have the ability to secure their own vitality. So what do they need to do? They need to create an alien ant farm out of this planet and get good people to believe they're doing good when in fact they are bringing vitality, psychic energy, to these dark lords because they can't do it themselves. Now, that's a very, I'm giving you a very like mystical medieval language version of it. Here's the basic breakdown. Look at a primary psychopath. Look at a brain scan of a primary psychopath you'll notice that there's a lot of black spots in the brain scan that aren't in a normal functioning human being that has empathy and reason and all that intact, okay? So they are in darkness, literally, okay? And I'm not going to get into the discussion about physical darkness and light. That's not good or evil either. That's just a practice, an aspect of nature. Light actually comes from the dark. We're talking darkness 
in the metaphysical, in the metaphorical sense of evil and ignorance and, you know, that that's what we're talking about. Um, they have to create conditions in the world in order to survive and in order for their project and their enterprise to survive these black magicians, they need us. They just don't want all of us anymore. They, there's too many. They're like, there's too many. We don't need all of you, but we need enough of you. And this is why they all want your worship and veneration. That's what they want. That's why they want, that's what they sell all the celebrities on and then get them hooked onto the drugs and then they get handlers and then the MK Ultra program begins and then they're now just puppets for the machine, right? Most of them. They figured out how to do this on mass, how to create mass rituals that when humans physically gather in spaces and big spaces together and are in putting their will and their soul light, their photonic light that charges up that cerebral spinal fluid and then animates that pineal gland. And then there's that whole projection of soul energy, if you want to use that term, or you could call it bioenergy, like what Reich called it, vitality, electromagnet, whatever you want to call it. They figured out how to vampire that and set up an amusement park out of this world, which does not have to be the natural state of things. They know how to turn the world into an amusement park that we go into, we plug ourselves in, and it's it's very similar to the analogy in the Matrix where now you're a battery that's giving energy to these machines. They're machines in their consciousness. It doesn't have to be like real AI or anything. It's just, it's machine thinking. Machine thinking, the absence of the light, the absence of vitality, self-generated inspiration, vitality, and virtue. They don't have it. So what do they do? They want it from you. And I can prove this very simply by just asking you, have you ever met an energy vampire in your life? And no, I'm not talking about like high level black lodge magicians and stuff. I'm talking just people that you can see this in them. There's people and it's by degree. It's by degree. There's like low level sociopath, right? Actually, Michael was talking about this in our recent Unslaved episode. He's like, people think, oh, there's only 5% uh, psychopaths or whatever. He's like, yeah, that's the 100%. Those are the people you'll probably never meet in your life. And if you do, it'll be the last thing you see. What about the like 80% and the 70% psychos and the 50% and the 10% and the 5%? Those are the ones that will plug in and actually support the major megalomaniacal psychopaths that are 100%. They're at the point of not even being human anymore, those ones, okay? But there's degrees. So if you met somebody at like 5% psychopath, sociopath, who just has enough of that rough, cold blood in them to manipulate you and lie to you and then use you not just to get the money and popularity and all that stuff, but to literally, whether they're conscious of it or not, to be in the space of your bioenergy. And so they become really good at knowing how to charge, to get you how to charge your bioenergy to a certain degree that they can literally siphon it off of you. And it's not, this isn't a conscious thing most of the time at that level. It's as simple as you know when you meet certain people and they walk into a room, people, people comment on this. They say this about certain people. They go, when that guy walks, he just knows how to light up a room. 
when he, when that guy comes in or that woman comes in there, man, she just knows how to light up the stage. There's something about her charisma. There's something about it. Like they even see this when they comment on like the, the next upcoming UFC guy or the next upcoming uh, superstar. They're like, they just have this thing. We can't, it's this indefinable energy. People love it. They, they can't get enough of that. They just have this, this thing. What is that thing? That's the vitality. That's the bioenergy. They just have it. They have that as being very strong in them. They're very organic. They're very authentic. They're, 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 they're very confident. They're, they're, they're very charismatic. They know how to make you laugh. They're just really good at that. And that is like the biggest prize that exists. That, that's soul essence. That's light. That's photon. That's bioenergy. And if you can't generate enough of it on your own, what do you do? That's why people go to seek the crowd. Those people that lack inner vitality because they're plagued with anxiety and they're sick internally or externally or both, they want the light of the crowd to light them up. They want the light of the amusement park to light them up. They want the light of this artificial metaverse reality to light them up. They want to be around all the, oh, I want to go with all those celebrities and follow what they say and the late night comedians and the, all the big guys up there, whatever Fauci says, you know, like I'm going to go with that because that is a reminder of the light. That's the vitality that I don't possess on my own. So I will go to big brother. I will go into the cult. I'll join Jim Jones. I'll go join heaven's gate. I know that's not going to end well, but I don't care because I'd rather be the, in the cult. I just want to win at all costs and I can't win on my own. So I'll seek solace in the crowd. So that's one dynamic. They know how to manipulate. The other dynamic happens on a one-to-one -one level. I've met many of these people. Manipulators, sociopaths, energy vampires. You literally walk out of the room after being with one of these fakers. So th what they do, what their trap is as a predator, this is an, in this is an inner species predator we got dealing with, this type, okay? They know how to become the actor on the stage or the comedian on the stage or whatever you... They figure out, what do you like? A lot of times these people ask you a lot of questions and they start getting information from you. And what they're trying to do is build the profile of what they need to be in order to get you to give them what they want. So this is the whole game of manipulation. They jack you up, get your bioenergy charged, get you all excited. That's why they're funny and they're very, you know, they're good at this stuff. I've seen them. But then behind the scenes, you see them. They're straight, cold-blooded, soulless people who are manipulative, they'll lie, they'll cheat, they're, they never, they're inconsistent. And so what Manly P. Hall is telling you here, and if you have, if you, and even if people are going to go, oh, I'll never listen because he was a Mason and he was, I don't like magic. It's too demonic sounding. Learn from the people that know this shit because he's telling you what they, what those guys believe and how they make it work. At least do that. Listen to what they're saying because this dynamic works. And so th on the one-to-one -one level, the average sociopath knows how to milk you for your conscious energy life force. And they need to manipulate you and get you to do it of your own free will or otherwise they won't get the good juice out of you. They'll get the fake stuff and that doesn't give them the high that they want, that they could never generate on their own. So they set the stage so that you are the circus animal in this experiment that they... Siphon your energy out of. Well, 
is it really a big stretch of imagination? Because as I'm talking, I'm sure you're thinking of, yeah, there's those people I've, I've been with that when I, I'm around them, I feel more energized. I feel more happy. I feel good. And I actually come home charged up. Those are probably good people in your life. If you come home energized after, good. But then there's the people that in the beginning you feel like that. And by the end of it, you feel drained, just exhausted. You're like, why? Every time I talk to this person, I'm just bloody exhausted. Because there's another world that we don't see going on of the exchange of bio and psychic energy. And these mofos know this and they know how to manipulate it and scale it to the mass level. And it's taken a long time for them to nail it, but they've just achieved one of their crowning achievements in the last few years, in my opinion. And that's why they create ritual. That's why they create the fun and the games for you. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but that they know how to manipulate this so that you are the energy farm animal that they want. And I think this also explains the whole adrenochrome thing or whatever's going on in that realm, whatever's going on in these underground layers, these black market, crazy organ harvesting things. I think it's also to do with this process of siphoning energy. I even think some of the wars and some of the major events of history were either set up or taken advantage of by these types because they prey on that energy. I know it's a crazy thought, but you're getting it from top level magicians. Now, real quickly, let me just read this to you about ceremonial magic and sorcery. Just going to run through it quick just to add some more. Ceremonial magic, this is just a theory, okay? It's just sort of a theory on it. You can take it what you want. Ceremonial magic is the ancient art of invoking and controlling spirits, which is just different forms of photonic light, by scientific application of a certain formula. A magician enveloped in sanctified vestments and carrying a wand inscribed with hieroglyphic figures, symbolism, could by the power vested in certain words and symbols control the invisible inhabitants of the elements and of the astral world. While the elaborate ceremony magic of antiquity was not necessarily evil, there arose from its perversion several false schools of sorcery or black magic. So again, they're just hinting the magical world didn't go away. They just changed names. And yes, a black cult rose out of it. Egypt, a great center of learning and the birthplace of many arts and scientists, furnished an ideal environment for transcendental experimentation. Here, the black magicians of Atlantis continued to exercise their superhuman powers until they had completely undermined and corrupted the morals of, primitive, of the primitive mysteries. If you want to bring Atlantis in, I would. We just did a show on Atlantis. Interesting subject. I think there was a whole missing chapter of human history. But for those out there that think this is too airy-fairy and we're looking at all this crazy magic stuff, you're more scientifically minded. Just think of these terms as, think of this as a part, a time in history where this knowledge came from. There was a much wider knowledge of it. And that knowledge got converted into basically a few different schools. And those schools are still active today. Now, whether we believe in it or not, doesn't really matter. What my curiosity is, is, what do the people running the world believe? That's really all that matters, okay? Because I want to know what they think. So by establishing a sacerdotal caste, they usurped the position formerly occupied by the true initiates and seized the reins of spiritual government. So 
this is the theory that on an energetic, magical level, which we could use scientific words to explain if we wanted, but if we look at it like this, some of these groups found this knowledge, realized it would lead to the ability to seize power illegitimately so they wouldn't have to actually do it properly. And they were successful in overthrowing the original wisdom keepers and the original magicians and the original sages, okay? And then doing that, they actually took over the spiritual governance on the earth, just like we have many good things in the medical institutions and many good people working in all these different fields in our institutions and in our government and even in our media and in our world, right? But the, we always talk about how it's compartmentalized. And if it's evil and tyrannical, it's because it's being run at the top by evil, tyrannical people, energy vampires, right? Criminals, keep it simple. What we're saying is that there was actually a compartmentalization of these magical mystery schools that took place as well. And the bad guys won at a certain time in history because they successfully took over these institutions, just like the Rockefeller Foundation eventually took over and swayed the whole history of Western medicine ever since they did it. It's the same thing happened behind the scenes in these lodges. And so a lot of these guys are just using this ancient knowledge to manipulate the current world towards their interests. So these sorcerers that we're talking about, they're saying, began the systematic destruction of all the keys to the ancient wisdom. So now you just have pieces of wisdom out there. Nobody can really pick it up what the whole thing's about. That's why we fight about it um, because we're missing the keys. They have the keys behind the lodge doors. And what is one of the big symbols at the Vatican in Rome? What's one of the big symbols of the Knights of Malta, of the Templars, of the Royal Colleges? It's the two cross keys. We got the keys and you don't. So we run the world and you do what we say. If you had the keys of knowledge and you can interpret and decipher what all this is all about, you would be no longer a little, pie on, on, a little pawn on the board now. You'd be in the game and they don't want many people in the game or they're going to lose the game. So some interesting history. I'll post more of this. I'm kind of running low on time, so I'm not going to be able to cover it all. Here, just a little summary here. I think this comes from uh, Elpheus Levi's Transcendental Magic. He's just giving you some definitions here, and I thought this was an interesting statement, regardless of what you think of Elpheus Levi. This is Baphomet, originally known as the Goat of Mendes, and it's the last sentence I want to get to, but let's just do it. The practice of magic, either white or black, depends upon the ability of the adept to control the universal life force, that which Levi calls the great magical agent or the astral light. So the light, the photonic light, they're learning how to control that. By the manipulation of this fluidic essence, the phenomena of transcendentalism are produced. The fluidic essence, my friends, I believe, is the orgone energy, the orgasmic energy, the cerebral spinal fluid, which intertwines up and down the spine, up the 33 vertebrae to refill the pool, literal pool in your brain upon which your pineal gland sits. And that electric current and that, um, uh, that bioelectric energy must be replenished for you to have brain power enough to interface with the real material world and what we call the spiritual or psychic world. Okay. So 
they're saying by manipulation of this fluidic essence, the phenomena of transcendentalism are produced. Think about what they're talking about in the transhuman world. It's purely, purely 100% at the top, the way they're talking about it, like uh, Yoel Harari and whatnot. It's black magic. It's what it is. So then they're talking, the, the famous hermaphroditic goat of Mendes was a composite creature formulated to symbolize this astral light. So before it became the big feature in the satanic world, it was simply a goat of Mendes talking to symbolize the astral light. It is identical with the Baphomet, which is the mystical, the, myst, the mystic pantheos of those disciples of ceremonial magic, the Templars, who probably attained it from the Arabians. So just an interesting story here to plug into a few factors. So we know there's no longer a difference between the Templars and the cult, the Knights of Malta. It's, they all got absorbed in. It's the same crowd. Um, and the Templars were the ones that obtained this, this Eastern mystical knowledge, that the Eastern magical school. Okay, so the East had a particular piece of this ancient lost knowledge. The Western Druids and all of them had a different piece. And it's been a sort of a thing ever since. And there's a lot of stuff to get into on it. But the Templars were the things, the ones that brought it to the West. And that's where they brought it into the Masonic lodges. They brought it into the royal houses and the royal colleges. And that's why that kind of symbolism is all over the place. And it was even brought into the medical world on a symbolic level. Okay. So the Templars learned it from these particular Eastern Illuminist groups. And we did a show on them in, on the slave called the Eastern Illuminati. So a, a sect. I also hinted at this with my dark side of Tibetan Buddhism with the Dalai Lama and all those. That's a, that's a door to open up if you want to get into some world conspiracy stuff of the manipulation of this ancient knowledge. And He's getting into the history of that symbolism, which everybody talks about, but know very little about it, actually, the history of it, and how it was a symbol of ritual magic that was converted after the Templar acquisition into these lodges that then used the knowledge they gained to achieve power in the world, very simply. So, And they attained it from the Arabians. So that... Just that last sentence, we could do a whole show on. I found it very interesting. And it, again, just to highlight the fact that these people are indeed practicing magicians hiding behind the cloak of materialist science and progress and whatever else. But clearly, because they, it's all, these types of symbols are all over the robes that they wear when they get inducted into these different ceremonies at the colleges. And that's a long, thing to come back to talking about what Charles Fort was saying, or Charles Fort, that's another show, Charles Hoff was saying about the manipulation of the colleges when it came to the pandemic, how the colleges were the ones who originally were, as we're told, the mainstream explanation is being, we're just the guys to make sure that the doctors are all practicing medicine properly according to our guidelines, they're not deviating and they're all doing their job, and we're like the regulatory body of all the doctors. That's what the colleges are. That's their job. Charles Hoff describes it as a failure in the colleges. I describe it as being 
a continuation of the function of the, the true function of these colleges, or at least you could also go with, uh, the fact that those colleges have become corrupted and infiltrated by agents paid for by your Bill Melinda Gates people and all these other guys who now are holding the seats of control in those colleges. And that's part of that compartmentalized structure so that when an average family doctor is trying to wonder why all of a sudden all the old science books were thrown out and there's this new science now that didn't make any sense and that if they questioned it, they would get fired and demonized and shut down and censored. They have to understand their own hierarchy internally and the history of where the, even the, even the idea of the way the structure was built, which is a Masonic structure, top to bottom, how the colleges are built. You got to know the history of where it came from to understand how it got to be as corrupt as it is. It's because it just didn't happen overnight. So you've got colleges of physicians and surgeons. What other examples just showing up right now that everybody's learning about? You got people like Jordan Peterson who are being threatened by the College of Psychiatry in Canada to do make a choice. He apparently, according to his tweets, he has to either undergo re-education training by the college, which is a massive communist tactic, if I ever saw one, re-education camps, anybody? So he has to be re-educated and change his belief system, or he loses his license to practice under that college. And this was the ultimatum given to all the doctors as well that went against the cult. So we got colleges involved. So I went in this chapter and I went, well, that reminds me of stuff coming out of the Rosicrucian documents, the documents from the Rosicrucians itself, the manifestos of the Rosicrucian order, who also got overtaken by these dark mag magicians, right? Not all bad, but eventually became bad in many ways. And that first conversation of something called an invisible college was actually discussed in the Rosicrucian manifestos. They talked about an invisible college. Okay. And there's a whole uh, history and esoteric reading of that whole thing. But just put that aside. These people are trying to copy a certain structure. Okay. And so when they're seeing the invisible college, and then it turns out that the Royal Society, which is why I gave you a bit of a, a dry history lesson in there, just to give you up to speed a just a little bit on this, what this Royal Society is. The Royal Society is the foundational society of modern science in the West. It established the first protocol for vaccinations. It established the first protocol for the whole premise of Western science and all the, and I'm talking institutions now, right? It established the protocol of peer review, the process of peer review, which there's a good process for peer review because you want to make sure that if we're looking, if we're studying objective reality, which is what science, that's the science department. Um, you want to have objectivity. So you want to have peer review to make sure you didn't make any mistakes. That's normal. But that process, as we've seen in other chapters of my series can be manipulated as well to produce artificial results so that everybody in science goes, Oh, look, that study that came out of the Lancet proves 
that locking healthy people in their homes for three years is a good thing or pick the thing they did and they based it off a peer reviewed journal. That's now called peer reviewed. Now what happens after a peer reviewed document gets approved by the official medical colleges and then put out through the literature, scientific literature and the studies and all that stuff, what happens next? All the doctors who are too busy doing their daily jobs to actually get into the nuts and bolts of all the science and see if it's true or not, just go, oh, it's peer reviewed. That's the thing we're following now. So we just go and we do what we're told and everybody's going to get the shot and everybody's going to wear two masks and everybody's going to, and you just, you saw it happen. You saw all the people just go, fine, we're not doing what we've always done. We're doing something new. We're basing it off what they do in China. That's what we're doing. Don't question it. And then two things happened. Either the doctor went, oh, it comes from the top. It comes from the most prestigious science in the world, the Royal College. I must follow it. It's got to be true. And then there's the other guy that's getting paid and saying, you know, we'll just keep buying you dinner and keep filling your bank accounts if you just do what we tell you. So they're sort of like the bribed ones. And then there's the ones who are threatened with termination of their license, which is the biggest thing you can do to a doctor or a lawyer or anybody big. They spent their whole life, hundreds of thousands of dollars on their education. They've achieved, this is part of their life, their identity. I am a doctor. I am a lawyer. And you go through and you think you're going to get those people to throw all of that out the window just because they disagree with the Royal College. Most of them wouldn't. And some of them are also afraid because they've seen what's happened to some of their colleagues. Well, thank God for people like Charles Hoff and many others who weren't afraid and spoke out. Um, so that process is important to understand. It's something I put in there to, uh, to just get you on the trail of this, this connection that you have Rosicrucian order, which is an elite secret society. I don't care if you like it or hate it or don't know about it. It's an elite secret society that has a certain piece of this ancient Templar knowledge. Okay. And, they were the first ones to formulate the occult college system, the invisible college. Occult is talking about the moon, the occulting of the moon. That's what the word means. A hidden, it's something is becoming occulted and obscured, right? That's what occult is. So they're talking about knowledge that's occult. So again, not good or bad. It's just a body of knowledge. The Rosicrucians laid out the map for the invisible college. Guess what the Royal Society on its own website refers to itself as? 1660 or 16, whatever it was founded. We refer to ourselves as the Invisible College. And you tell me that there's no, it's all just pure science and there's no occult stuff in there. There's no mystical magician knowledge going on. It's all just empirical data and peer review science. I'm talking again about the core at the top, the people behind it, the people that created it, you know? And now you have what I've been saying from the beginning about how to understand how this whole thing works. If you want to keep control, you need a compartmentalized system. You need a military structure, military, Knights of Malta, military order, known as, guess what their, their tag is? The religion. That's what they're called. They're called the religion. <laughs> Knights of Malta. That's uh, the hospitalers, Knights Hospitalers. Um, they know th there's this whole body of knowledge that they adopted that they realized would work. 
for creating the best business model this world has ever seen. What's bigger than pharma? Anything? Weapons manufacturing? Nope. Drugs? Nope. Illicit drugs, I mean, because I think they got their hands in both those pots. Uh, military industrial complex? Doesn't even hold a flame. Medical industrial complex? Psh, best business in town. Immune from prosecution. You've got the whole thing set up in your favor. No real scrutiny. The, the, it's pretend scrutiny. It's all pretend because these guys are still in business after making drugs that kill millions of people for decades. And people just trust it. Trust it. So you can only achieve that kind of power where you can come in and kick all the government officials out and put medical advisors in that all adhere to the royal college, their invisible college at the end of the day when you boil it all down. Who has that kind of power? Black Lodge, Black Magicians, they've been working on it for a long time. Illegitimate power. That's why they don't care about Nuremberg or your constitutions or your charters of rights or your bodily autonomy. They don't give a shit. This is about something way bigger for them. This Great Reset is also just another branch of a bigger thing that's going on. Way bigger than the people you see on TV or the people you're learning about. Way bigger, way older, way bigger, bigger like just... It's a secret, invisible college at the end. That's my opinion. And then uh, quickly, because I got to wrap some of this. I put a quote in here. This is the whole quote. So this was also with my uh, uh, laser hawk arrival scene where we're going through this whole thing about free will and magic and all this stuff. Uh, it comes from Samuel A.N. War from his book, Tarot and Kabbalah. He's saying this about, again, commenting on magic. The intellect as the negative function. So when the intellect is weaponized, okay, the mind is demoniacal. So when you weaponize the intellect where it rules the roost and you now have one side of the brain dominant and the other side in the occult, in shadow, you, can pr you produce a psychopath basically, okay? Everyone that enters into these studies about magic and consciousness and spirit, etc., the first thing that they want is to dominate the mind of others. So you're saying a lot of people go into these magical mystery schools because they want to learn how to dominate other people, gain power and control and wealth, right? This is pure and legitimate black magic. No one has the right to violate the free will of others. This is the, car this is the cardinal rule, guys. No one has the right to exercise coercion upon the mind of others because this is black magic. The ones that are guilty of this grave error are all of those mistaken authors that are everywhere. All of those books on hypnotism, magnetism, and suggestion are books of black magic. I found it interesting he's making this comment about hypnotism, magnetism, and black magic because there's chapter five where I go through the quote from the Duke of Brunswick who was the head of uh, German Freemasonic lodges, which was like the head of pretty much all the Masons, where he came out at his time and actually warned the Masons that they were being infiltrated by what he called a black, a dark sun cult, okay? And he said, he ascribed certain features to them. He said, our houses and temples have been infiltrated by a dark sun cult that is well-versed in hypnotism, magnetism, and powerful suggestion, meaning mind control. I found it interesting he said that, and here we have a quote from another magician who's telling you, these are the features of black magic right now. 
Whosoever does not know how to respect the free will of others is a black magician. There's all your world leaders right now, a bunch of black magicians. Those who perform mental works in order to violently dominate the mind of others convert themselves into perverse demons. These people separate themselves from the innermost and they crumble into the abyss. So you're getting the profile here from someone on the inside. And then, of course, you could sum it up in uh, one sentence from H.L. Mencken when he said, the urge to save humanity is almost always only a false face for the urge to rule it. And it makes sense, my friends, this quote. I wanted to say this. This goes from your average everyday manipulator in your life all the way up to the top of the Black Lodge pyramids. That everybody out there wants to save the world. We're almost cursed by how many people want to save the world. And you're going to be like, what? We should save the world, Dave. What's your problem? Hold on a sec. How are you going to save the world? Well, you can't even save yourself first, right? Like, you're going to go out and critique the world and critique everything going on and call everybody a shill and call this and that and get in there and put all the opinions out there. And you're going to start movements, the climate groups, oh, we're going to save the world from the weather and the back, the COVIDians, and we're going to save the world from disease and all the new radical uh, people going into politics. We're going to save the world from all those people that just want to be left alone and be free. <laughs> like whatever it is, there's always these grand missions, these big missions that are impossible. And they're not even your right to do. And yet we, we go to that and we think my life, some of these people I've met, that are giving me all the speeches about what we need to do for equality and what we need to do to achieve uh, unity in the world and what we need to do to stop disease, what we need to do with all these things. And I see sort of the lifestyle of many of these people. And they're a bloody mess. They can't even keep their house in order. They, their health is not is a disaster. Some of the most unhealthy people you'll meet. Plagued by anxiety, plagued by constant problems and re weird relationships they attract to themselves of other abusers and manipulators and it keeps happening and they don't understand that they're contributing to that and they don't get it these are the people that want to go save the world and that's just the microcosm of the people at the top that we're looking at that have the same curse uh, c.s lewis had a really good comment about them too the moral busybodies he called them the people that are all the higher the holier than thou's out there telling you how to do it and then selling you like this, all this stuff, the Green New Deal and, and the UN agenda to all the protocols. It's all for the benefit of humanity. And um, stop worrying about the Club of Rome, guys. They're just, they were just trying to do what's best for the greatest number. And, you know, all the Stalins of the world and the Che Guevara's and Mousy Tongues. And you're like, yeah, they, they all wanted to save humanity, didn't they? Why did it always end up in genocide, death, poverty, destruction, and the end of freedom and the end, the opposite of humanity? Why? Always. It's because of this. It's a false face. It's a fake sales pitch. It's a lie they tell themselves, and then they believe it after a while, and then they act upon it. 
that I don't want to work on me. I don't want to take personal responsibility. I don't want to learn from someone like, like Tesla and all these other guys who are trying to call you back to yourself again, right? And call you back to the true divinity of the, of the universe. And we don't want that. We want instant gratification. We want to have the worship of the masses and what better sales pitch to get the most amount of followers and the most amount of people who love and adore and worship you than to go out on the brave mission to save the world. What better sales pitch could you have? So there might be well-intentioned people that want to change and make change in the world. Great. God love you. After a time, the quality of the integrity of that person will be challenged because you will be approached by the big financiers, by the big investing firms, by the lobby groups, by the activist groups of which are just nasty and ruthless. Um, they know how to use lawfare. They know how to destroy your life if they need to. You're going to be, if you had a well-intentioned person that was starting like, I don't know, Greenpeace or something, I just want to clean up the oceans and I want to save the world from all this pollution. You start out well, but how your moral integrity will be challenged to the degree that you're going to keep getting blasted by these NGO groups and these government groups and these sustainable development people that are going to come in and try to buy you out, try to get on your board, try to take over, try to pay you off, try to coax you into their game, try to convert you to their faith. And you will be constantly, as an individual that wants to save the world, you're going to be put to the test. All that moral virtue signaling is going to be put to the test because can you withstand the forces of evil that are going to come knocking on your door to try to recruit you in the process of trying to save the world from them? Most people, even well-intentioned, don't have the spine for it, let alone the moral integrity to do it. So you see this keep happening and you go, well, the most brilliant thinkers were always trying to tell you the way to save the world is to start by working on yourself. Because by trying to save the world, you're thinking that your little mind can come up with the solutions for all the world's problems enough to be able to get it out and get everybody to march in your band. And then you end up creating a cult, even if you didn't want to. The masses, the other side of the relationship, will fill the void. And they'll make a cult out of what you're trying to do, whether you wanted it to be that way or not. So there's also that to consider. And then there's the considering of your actual true intentions of why you want to save the world, why you want to be the leader of the new movement. Why do you want to go into politics and win the prize, right? Why? The real motivation, if we're honest, in many cases, not all, there's always exceptions. And I'm not trying to lay this out with everyone, just saying in general, when we look at history, you'll find that your urge to save the world and save humanity and fight for the cause and fight the beast can also be motivated by an urge to control the outcome. Because that's where people that lack inner control and feel the need to control and even feel that need to control outside of their uh, what they're permitted by natural law to control they blow it up to such a big degree that they become the very tyrants that they're trying to dethrone. Just like William Blake warned us. The hand that crushes the tyrant's head rises up a tyrant in its stead. So this is just cautionary as we move forward that you look at yourself and be honest too. Like I know 
most of us here have a genuine desire to just help the world and be rid of this evil and fight the good fight and to make the world even just a little better when we leave it than when we entered it. That's the best a, an individual can do anyways. But that desire, when you ignore your inner responsibility to the house, the kingdom of heaven that you've been given purview over, that's your responsibility that you've been given, nobody else's. And you can't force that on anybody else either. That's your, your life and your that's your That's your kingdom. That's your right. When you go to the next stage of leaping out of that to go, well, I want to control the outcome of everything because I think I know best. You'll find out soon enough that with a lot of these types, their urge to save humanity is fake and it's a cover story for the urge to rule it because they're secretly inner control freaks that they're so terrified by the consequences of nature that they feel like, well, instead of learning like what a Wilhelm Reich was trying to say with health, let's work with the natural forces of nature. Let's realize it's a symbiotic system and there's many dimensions to it and there's all kinds of stuff going on. Let's just try to keep, let's be gardeners. Let's not go in and just kick the place apart and try to rebuild it off what we think. Let's, let's realize that there's a wisdom and a, an intelligence to nature and the cells of your body and your, every, the product of you being here that is beyond your ability to even understand. So who are you to go around and mess with that to such a degree that you're going to try to control it? That's, this quote is why the World Economic Forum exists. That's what it is. It's run by these people. This is Justin Trudeau's psych profile right here. This is Emmanuel Macron right here. This is Fauci right here. They might even believe their own bullshit. They might not even know they're a cog in a wheel of the bullshit of some other higher magician above them. They don't know. I don't think. But this is that, that's it. They want to rule humanity because they have no inner rulership. So they can't produce inner vitality and inner light. So they need to siphon it off the rest of everybody else. And what a better way to gain the thrones of power and influence than to tell everybody around, Hey, I'm here to save the world. What's the problem? And people go, yeah, we should save the world. I think you're the one to do it. And unfold all the history of all the tyrants and cult leaders and killers in the world. It's this, this is what it is. So is that it? Is that, I can't remember. Do I have another one? Oh, well, okay. Let's wrap with this. I had a bunch of other links. I'm not even going to get to it, but it's all good. We can do another part if we need. Let's finish with this because this was actually the real point. If you got anything out of chapter nine, I hope you got this. I hope you got this. If Charles Hoff was saying the truth of this was a pandemic of fear, that's what it was. It wasn't what they told you it was. Then we need the antidote to fear if we're to get out of this hell that we're in. And I love this quote from Frank Herbert. This is the quote that you'll I'll, I periodically go through in the series. I really love these scenes. They were very personal for me. This was one of the quotes that gave me a lot of strength over the years. Um, the snow, the blowing snow, the, the, the eagle, 
was the sort of power animal. Specifically, it was a golden eagle. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, the, the solitude, the fact that it flies above, the eye, the fact that it has this great vision. Um, I'm like, that's the that's our power animal for when we're talking about fear and how to fly above this dark matrix, how to fly above and see it for what it is and how to face the fear, how to address it. Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Don't drown it out with drugs and, sur- and drugs and all this shit. Face it, integrate it, learn from it. And this is how he says it. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Didn't fear act as the little death that brought total obliteration to our freedom, guys? And our lives? It wasn't COVID. It was fear. So I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. That's that's how you fight fear, guys. You don't fight fear by ignoring it and suppressing it and drowning it out. Fear is a companion that you nurture a relationship with so that it never, it, it becomes an informant and not a tyrant. So you, you permit the fear to pass through. You don't censor it. You don't run away from it. You don't hide it. You don't distract yourself. You sit with it alone to deal with it. You sit with it. You confront it. You think through it. You allow it. You almost talk to it like it's a child that you're trying to calm down. That's what I do. I sit on my balcony by myself at night, listen to the wind pass through the trees, and I let my fear pass over me and through me. And when my fear has gone past, this is the killer. This is the one that's going to free you from fear for the rest of your life, my friends, if you grasp it and you practice it. I'm telling you from experience. I'm not trying to preach to you. I'm not trying to convert you. I'm telling you honestly from one human soul to another, this is what saved me years ago was doing exactly this. This is how I did it. I didn't take psychotropic medications. I didn't do any of that stuff. I learned this and I'm so grateful and I wanted to share it with you. That when your fear has gone past, you're going to realize something. You will turn your inner eye to see the path of your fear. And where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And this, getting emotional here, getting some goosebumps. Only I will remain. That's your Holy Spirit right there. That's it. That's what I think it is. When the fear passes, you realize it's not you. And then you're free of it. Because the biggest thing about fear is you start to think, this is me now. I'm just a, I'm a scared person now. I'm a person that lives in fear. That energy, you think, you start to identify with that fear energy as being you. Now, it is an aspect of you. But what it does is just like a virus or a disease or whatever you want to call it, passes through you. When it's gone, it did something. It actually cleansed your body. It actually detoxed your body when it went through you. And now only you are left. So when you realize the fear is the mind killer, it shuts down your reason, your logic, your higher order decision making. When fear is the dominant force, it brings total obliteration to everything in its path. But when you control it like a fire, that fire can be something that brings warmth to you. I put a lot of campfire symbols in, in this one as well to bring that feel. That's the fear. 
The campfire, that's the fear. That's the spirit. That's the light. Actually, fire is just stored sunlight releasing itself. That's pretty interesting, right? So the fear, you let it pass through you. When it's gone, you look inside and you realize that fear wasn't me, the real deep down me. That Alan Watts and Bruce Lee and David Icke and who else did I put in there? Um, Nathaniel Brandon we're talking about and that last scene, right? To tell you what you really are, the real deep down you. You're something the universe is doing. You're something God is doing in the same way that a wave is something the whole ocean is doing. That no, that part of yourself looks inside after the fear goes through and you realize, I wasn't the fear. I was experiencing the fear for a purpose and now it's just me left. And when you know that, when that clicks, every time fear comes back to you, you will always have the proper mindset to defeat it and to deal with it. If you don't have this knowledge, the fear is like a tornado that just pushes you around and does whatever it wants with you and leaves you in a crumpled mess at the end. But to face your demons, to face your dragons, to face your fear, if you go through the process of the real inner magic and you become the warrior and you face it and you integrate it, now fear is your servant, not the other way around. And that is how you fear. And then you're never going to feel that level. You'll feel fear. Fear now is an employee that you have to inform you about danger. And that's it. It doesn't live in you. It doesn't become embedded in you. It's not this anxiety that's just oozing out of you. Even when you don't have anything realistic in front of you to be afraid of, it still sits there and lives with you. That's because you've invited it to do that. It, it, it didn't pass through you. It's stuck. It's stuck. It's just stuck energy that didn't dissipate. So you have this amazing faculty to rinse it out and to then sit back. And I've learned to sit back and say thank you to my fear. What an act that is. To thank your enemy, to thank the thing that tortured you for many years. I grew up, I grew up in fear. I grew up with this. I was practically suicidal by the age of 16. When I finally figured this shit out, I don't even recognize who that person was. I, I, I feel fear. I feel my own angst. I have my own things, but it never owns me anymore. Never. It never has ever since. So that means that that's the best evidence of mind over matter if there ever was anything. It's all phenomena of, of what's going on in you. You know these guys are out there manipulating it to keep you in fear because then you're an easy target. You're easy prey. But then the answer to it comes from that warrior culture, that sage culture that comes in and goes, oh, with the fear thing? Pfft, yep, you're going to feel fear. You're going to feel fear. Time to grow stronger. Time to face it. Let it work with it. Turn it into your servant instead of it being, you being a slave to it. And now every time it comes, you're going to recognize it. And the next time you'll be even stronger at rinsing out the fear. And then the next time even more. And the next time even more. It's like anything else. You just got to practice it. And boy, are we given lots of opportunities in these last few years to practice this. And maybe, just maybe, on a higher level somewhere, there's a method to this madness. We're going through this. This dark occult world doesn't even know it, but they're the employees of the real powers of this universe. 
They're the slaves to them. They don't know it. They think they're on off the leash and they're just trying to do They don't know that they're serving a higher purpose, which is to be the exact opponent that humanity needs in order to be able to get to the final choice as to whether or not as a species, we continue to evolve and grow and achieve great things and finally actualize the potential that we have, or are we going to be annihilated? And you got to be up against a wall like that in order to inspire growth. Most of us have found some of our best, the best parts of ourselves during this time. I have. I feel like I've done my best work. I don't think I could have done the job I did with Cult of the Medics had it not been something I created during this war, <laughs> like where I'm going through all the stuff we're all going through too. Like I needed to go through this spiritual uh, war, psychic war, physical war in order to be able to create something out of it. That's all it was. So maybe on a bigger level, we're being conditioned to be able to withstand tremendous pressure, tremendous fear, tyranny, evil. We're learning about it more. It's coming to the surface. We're in the age of revealing, right? Maybe there's a higher purpose to even that. And it starts with what we showed you here. It starts with you. It starts with you mastering fear. If the pandemic was based on fear, propaganda, and mass mind control by the way of fear, then the vaccine for fear is this. And that disempowers the enemy of freedom and truth like you wouldn't believe. They got nothing now. Those sociopaths, those manipulators that want to vampire your energy, you're the one laughing at them now. <laughs> Look at you trying to, you don't have your own inner spiritual essence to work with. You got to come and plunder mine. Get off my porch. That's the real power. And you have it. We don't have to wait for some the perfect person to get elected. We don't have to wait for any of that shit. We just start right now, every single one of us, working on that. That's a good place to start. And then what will happen is you'll be inspired to do the work that you're supposed to do to actually help the world, to actually improve things, to actually make things better in the way that you can. Because you've got the order correct. If you miss that step of addressing your own inner fear and your own inner house, and you leap right to, I just want to go fix the world, you end up becoming one of the biggest tyrants there is over time because you need to control everything. And then there you go. So that's why the dynamics of all of this, how tyranny comes to being, isn't just about the tyrant. It's also about the slaves that want the tyrant because the slave hasn't realized their inner power and they feel like the only place they have power is from the tyrant. So we just need to evolve that. Otherwise we're on a hamster wheel and we're going to keep repeating the cycle. So there it is, guys. That's my notes on chapter nine. That's the mindset I was in when I made it. That's the baseline of what I'm trying to communicate through these chapters, ultimately. And I feel like there's so many more places I'm going to be able to go with this, but I just hope it helped. I hope that some of it helped you. Um, I hope that now those of you who are really astute researchers in your own right, are going to be able to take some of these little threads and crumbs that I've thrown out there and you can even help me research this. And um, in the end, we can find the truth and we can, maybe we can't save the world, but we can, we can 
definitely save ourselves. We can definitely improve what's going on with us. And I think by improving us, we improve the world. So that's it, guys. Uh, I've got a bunch of links that I wanted to go through, but I won't go through them because I'm out of time. I will just post them over on my Telegram. Find me at DW Truth Warrior. I'm going to put all my slides over there. And please help me share out this documentary series. Get it out as far as you can if you have the ability to do that. Um, and you can get it all right now, cultomedics.com. I'm even got, I even have a, I have a copy of chapter nine on my YouTube channel. You can find me just, you know, what is my YouTube channel even called? I should look it up. Hold on. I'll find it for you. It's new. So I keep forgetting the name of it. Uh, what did I call it? Oh yeah. At DW Truth Warrior. <laughs> I should have known that. At DW Truth Warrior. Uh, that is my channel. So if you go over there, I do have a copy of it. It's surviving. I don't know how long it'll stay, but it's surviving. So I'm leaving it there. But of course you can get it on all the other channels. If you want to support this mission, um, feel free to leave a donation on the site if you want, or share it out or go support my sponsor, rise attire. Uh, I'm wearing some of their stuff right now. They got some really cool swag conversation starters, counter symbolism, and, uh, it also helps the project. Uh, so that's some ways you can support it. And other than that, stay tuned here on Truth Warrior. I got lots more coming your way. Um, let me know what you think in the comments and I'll catch you guys next time. Get rid of that fear, guys. Truth is going to win in the end. Trust me. <laughs>